listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. All right, everybody, welcome to the GGTMC. Yes, I am back this week <laughs> after uh, taking a week off due to, uh, well, just some obligations that came up. And, uh, of course, now I have a chest cold. <laughs> uh, that's what happens. Yes, that's what happens. Lake Minnetonka. That's right. That's right. Regretfully didn't get to do the reviews uh, after talking about them uh, with other people. <laughs> Uh, this past weekend to get to do the reviews, but I was right on. But I'll, I'll just say I don't have anything to add really um, to those reviews. But I wanted to actually get in that uh, you know I agree with you guys pretty much on everything on those. Uh, I even I think I gave uh, Can't Stop the Music like a five point five, and uh, but uh, you know it is it's a fun movie, but uh, definitely not a <laughs> definitely not a movie movie. But I think the one thing I took away from uh, when I did my research on all of that stuff. Is that Prince has sold eighty million albums worldwide? But yeah, the, but the, eighty million. But hang on, the Village People have sold a hundred million. <laughs> so think about that for wow. a minute. <laughs> the Village People have blown Prince out of the water in their history. So I just want everybody to think about that when they think they want to crack a Village People joke sometime. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure, hundred million. Wow. Yeah, one of the most successful groups of all time, believe it or not. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's insane. I, yeah, I was going to say at a point in the <laughs> review, and I felt this way when watching Can't Stop the Music. I didn't bring it up on air, but man, fuck Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> oh, man. Make it about the village people, yo. But, that Gutenberg thing was strange. Uh, you guys were talking about it, but I have one note I didn't hear you guys talk about, but that, there is more acting with his right arm in that film than any other film I've ever seen <laughs> anybody. He's constantly pumping that right arm, man. Yeah. He must have seen Pacino in the bar and cruising while they were filming that film, dude. He took my joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure, man. You had the cereal in your mouth. <laughs> no. No, Awesome Fabian's posting about a Gutenberg film called The Bedroom Window on Facebook. Nice. The Goot. <laughs> well, anyway. Uh, okay, so after an eventful couple weeks for me, uh, I'll get into what I've been watching here a few, but as always, I defer to Will. Uh, no, let me talk about what we're covering here first, so let me get into that. Uh, we're, this is Diabolic DVD Week. So make sure you head over there. I know some people have been shopping over there. I'm glad. I'm happy. Quite a few have. And uh, keep doing it, guys. Keep telling them we sent you over there. This week, uh, my selections uh, from Beyond, 1986, Stuart Gordon. So we'll be talking about that. Um, slightly moist film. And uh, Rumblefish, 1983. Directed by one Francis Ford Coppola. Who, uh, has he been on our show? Have we done a Coppola? No, Coppola, no. But we've oddly we've done a Gordon. We have done a Gordon, but have we done? Have we uh, really? We haven't done a Coppola. That's unbelievable. It's pretty astounding. Yeah. Hmm. Strange. I just I would have thought we had done one by now, but two yeah, you'd think something <laughs> like the conversation or you know something like that would have dropped in at this at this point. But yeah. um, well, here yeah. we are, five years in almost, mm-hmm. and. Almost 300 episodes, and Francis is finally getting on the show. We'll talk a little Frankie. Yeah. Frankie Ford, baby. 
Yeah, man. All right. Uh, so, what have you been watching, Large William? Not much. As I was saying to you off the air, and we've kind of been talking about the group and so forth. Um, busy time of year, a lot going on outdoors and and all that good stuff, which is fantastic. But uh, it does cut into the film watching time. So I only watched um, two films yeah. outside of the films for the show. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, because I got plenty to back up for that. So good, good. <laughs> uh, first one I watched was a rewatch of A Better Tomorrow. Oh, nice. John nice. from um, I own to me like his big three have always been a bullet in the head, hard boiled, and A Better Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I haven't watched any of them, and probably I, I think I watched, I've rewatched parts of Hard Boiled in the past mm-hmm. ten, fifteen years. But and Bolton had I rewatched me within the definitely within the past ten years with a couple friends. But uh, I hadn't watched a better tomorrow in over ten years, so I wanted to revisit it. Um, and yeah, I if it's it's fantastic. I mean, it really is uh, a high watermark in action cinema and Hong Kong cinema. Um, the melodrama's there, but it um, if you can kind of cut through the melodrama to the, to the message, you know, this thing of... It, it's a pretty poignant message, nonetheless, and there's sort of a doomed, uh, inevitable doom to the film and some of the characters and their fates. Um, yeah, it's, it's still a high watermark. Like it's still nine for me. I mean, it's, yeah, it's an exceptional film. It's, and it's weird. That one's out of all of Wu's films. That one always seems to kind of, when people talk about his action films, they seem that that one always, it seems to me, I'm not saying this is a fact, but it seems like that one comes up like well behind the other ones. Yeah. Hard boiled is is certainly the one that people talk about the most because it kind of got a bit of a push over here and yeah, most readily the iconic shooter at the back end at the hospital and mm-hmm. it's um, I, I don't I don't think there's you know uh, I mean there's some wild shootouts in this but I don't think it's it necessarily has a set piece like that and just the kind of bleakness of a bullet in the head but um, yeah it's it's amazing man it's uh I wouldn't mind double deucing the two of them on the show as we were talking about sometime just to kind of dig in because the only woo we've done, what woo have we done? I think we've done woo once or twice. Have we done a woo? <laughs> Maybe we haven't done a woo, man. I don't know. We've talked about him a lot because he's so influential, but yeah, I don't know if we've ever done anything. I know we haven't done Hard Boiled. I know we haven't done The Killer, but Tomorrow 1 and 2, I know we haven't done Bullet in the Head we haven't done. And, uh, you know, those are the five off the top of my head that really jump out. Um, and mm. of course the American films, we haven't done any of the American films. No, we've, we've come close. Hard target is on our roadmap, but yeah. because other That's shows right. have covered it, we haven't done it. That's true. Recently, or, or we don't have any plans to do it recently, not anytime soon, but we will eventually get to it. Um, yeah, I'm sure yeah. we'll get to plenty of woo. We got, to we it. will. And it, yeah, it is, I, but there is, I think the most iconic shot from that film is the shot of Chow Yan Fat lighting uh, the cigarette with the hundred dollar American bill? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, right? I mean, that's the shot. You know, it's. But yeah, it's uh, it's great, man. It really held up well. Um, it, so for sure, that was great. Uh, next was uh, you know really in the mood to get back into the Eurocrime. Uh, I hadn't seen a lot of Italian stuff lately. I, you know, I went through 
I was digging deep a few years ago, trying to get caught up, and over the course of our show, really, other than the the dozen or so I'd seen prior, and um, I had a few that I was I had never seen, and one of them was Rome, the other side of violence, uh, directed by Marino Gerlami, and of course Gerlami is uh, Enzo Castellari's father, mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's a good film. It's it certainly you can see some of Enzo's influences in here. Um, it's got Marcel Bozuffe, who uh, Italian character actor, did some French film. Maybe he's French, actually. Now that I think about it, but um, because he was Italian by by birth or by bloodlines, he worked in both countries. You know, a lot of good people jump back and forth, but he's sort of the lead in it, and uh, it's uh, it's it's good time, man. It's just got some pretty brutal stuff, a brutal rape, of course, being part for the course of the Eurocrime. Yeah. You know, it's a little wash, rinse, repeat with, you know, uh, frustration when they're at the precinct to driving around and in the Fiats and Alfa Romeos to slapping punks and shootouts. But it's got actually Anthony Steffen, too. Um, nice. Yeah. So kind of these two, the two principal roles are Steffen and and Botsufi, and they one plays a cop, one plays kind of a... Uh, just a, a you know man of the public and and how their kind of roads converge towards the end of the film. So uh, worth a watch for sure if you can track it down. There's a pretty clean print of it uh, floating around. So that was my week. Uh, the sorrow and the pity eludes me for another week. Nice. Oh wait, did I let me think here? Yeah, that's everything. Cool. Yeah, it's got a great title. Rome. Uh, what was it again? <coughs> Rome. The other side of violence. I love that. I love that. Actually, never heard of that one. Or maybe no, I never heard of it. If obviously I know who I'm, uh, I'm aware of uh, Castellari's father and some of his work, but I never heard of that one. So, yeah, it's it's certainly one that's uh, not you know it's not as well known as as most of the genre. Uh, it's a little more, you know certainly more of a a deep cut. Yeah, deep cut, deep slice. Yeah. And it is official, bro. We've never done a John Woo film. Let us look through his filmography. <laughs> so, oh, boy. We've never done a Woo. Well, that's got to change. We are Wooless. <laughs> and it's great to see Woo makes a little cameo at the back end of A Better Tomorrow, too. Nice. Looking yeah. a lot thinner than he is now. Yeah, I'll tell you if, you, if you know what John Woo looks like, he's very distinct. So you can't really. Yeah, you can't. You can't he's got that. Uh, does he still got that uh, mole on his nose? Yeah. yeah you can't, can't, uh, can't escape that. Know exactly what he looks like. Oh, yeah. All right, so I watched a lot, but I've been gone for two weeks. But uh, even being gone two weeks, I watched a lot more than I normally do. Uh, it's just been uh, a good run of uh, film watching lately, and uh, it's felt pretty good because I, you know, I don't get an opportunity to do that much anymore. So it was just like you know, really refreshing. Uh, <laughs> it's really funny to say it's refreshing, but it's like like working out or something. But uh, <laughs> I'm not working out; I'm just sitting on my ass. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, look, I'll get into it a little bit here. So. Uh, I watched. Uh, I finally got around to Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. I finally got around to that, and uh, yeah, man, I got to say this movie's pretty fucking good. I got to say that, man. It's it's a little long in the tooth, and there's some stuff in the middle that sags, but the action beats are really good. It is incredibly incredibly violent. I have to agree with most everybody that's seen it and said that it is overtly violent, which is interesting. I mean, because it's it's really harsh. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's really good. Um, my only complaint would be that uh, my only main complaint would be that uh, 
I don't know. Atkins is kind of weird as the uh, main protagonist of the film. He's kind of compared to some of the heavies in it. He's a little bit of a limp noodle. But uh, that's just because of his uh, the way he talks sometimes and the way he does things. And uh, but he's really I mean he's good in the film. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing. Van Damme is now in his mid fifties, and uh, out of everybody in the movie, he really uh, action wise when he does when he does step it up, he really steps it up. And uh, it's interesting because you know I know that Atkins is uh, I know that he got hurt on this film and they had to change some things so. Their their uh, quote unquote fight in this film is much better than the one I saw in Assass- Assassination Games, but it's really cool seeing these two. These two have a real good chemistry together, Van Damme and Atkins. They really do. Uh, Lundgren's in it as well, but uh, really starting to show his age. Uh, so I'll just put it that way. You know, oh yeah. So, but it is a good film, man. It, it's good, and uh, there's a UFC fighter in there, MMA. Uh, somebody, somebody in there. I can't remember uh, what his name off the top of my head. Me and Jake were talking about it, but he's got a great, great, great face, and uh, he's really good in the film too. Doesn't do a whole lot, but he just looks great. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, when you get around to it, you get around to it, man. Yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it when you do, though. I got the blue. I almost put it on. That's when you watched. I almost put it on this week. And I thought that Himes. I I, I thought you know a name like Himes. He has to be related to uh, Peter Himes. He, he is. Yeah, it's yeah. a son. It's a son. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh. Uh, and you can definitely see some Himes like influences there with the go, uh, with some of the stuff going on. And uh, if you're epileptic, don't watch this film in the dark. I'm serious, man. Oh. There's some serious fucking strobing going on in this movie. I mean, insane. I've seen some crazy. St- I mean, this is like Gaspar Noé type strobing shit going on, man. Seriously. Oh yeah, it's it's it. It can be brutal, <laughs> but I, I mean, it works. It works for the film. So yeah, definitely a, a thumbs up, as the No Creeps would say. Definitely. Uh, Definitely a good film, so check it out. It's on Netflix Instant for those who uh, may not know. The $64,000 question, is there splits? Uh, you know what? I don't recall any splits. This is Van Damme playing a heavy again, and he's gotten... I, I tell you, man, if he sticks with uh, playing heavies for the next 10 years, I think he's he's really solidified his career as this you know uh, B-action movies guy. Uh, he's really, really good as a heavy. I mean, I, I never thought I'd say that, but he uh, he really can bring it as a heavy in a film. He really can. Um, I've seen him do it a couple times now, and uh, I got to say, you know, he's he's very charismatic, and uh, I'm just really surprised at uh, all these years now that uh, you know he does still make some uh, some not not so good films. I haven't seen some of the more recent stuff, but. I'm really amazed that he's kind of made a turn, really, ultimately. And uh, I'm really excited about this new era of action directors. I mean, we're really starting to get into a... I think we're getting ready to see a a renaissance of really, really, really solid up-and-coming B action directors. Yeah. Uh, We've already kind of been there a little bit, but I think we're really, really starting to see it. And uh, kind of, you know, recharging the genre a little bit, which is good. Yeah, because we've been lamenting it for a while, so it is nice to see that... um there's at least a handful of guys that seem to be moving in back in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's really nice. Um, all right, so I got into a lot of stuff. I went to uh, the Hocking Hills Forest for a uh, camping trip. Well, essentially a hanging out in a cabin, not no, not no actual camping, nothing brutal, but uh, with a bunch of people from other podcasts, Night of Living Podcast. Uh, let's just say I, I, I can name names, but I'll, just, I'll name a few, Jake, uh, Matt, Suzaka, Justin Oberholzer from over at Film Rave. Like I said, Night Sex Rave? Yeah, Sex Rave. Yeah, for that show. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
uh, quite a few people. Ken from up in Indy and uh, Troy, all, all kinds of people. Troy and his wife Tabitha and just out, you know Randy, all kinds of Lisa and all of them. I mean, I can name everybody, but if, if, you, if I don't forget your name, I'm sorry. I love you all. It was a great time. But we were up there, and we, you know, we we thought we didn't have a lot of time to do anything, but we had a lot of time, and we had a great time. So we watched a lot of movies together, especially me, Matt, Jake, and Oberholzer. And nice. uh, I think uh, yeah, Randy was there for quite a few of them and a couple other people. And we started a bunch, too. I, it's funny, I didn't write them down, but we started stuff like Tourist Trap and and uh, stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I didn't finish those, so I didn't uh, technically you know, write them down as a completed film I watched. But uh, yeah, we we had a good time. But anyway, I'm going to go through some of those right now and kind of re-talk about them a little bit. Because a lot of them are rewatches. Uh rewatched Maximum Overdrive. Uh, which was, you know, maximum overdrive. It was fun. You, you get to see Emilio talking shit to the, <laughs> yeah. to the machines. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we watched that again, which was was good. And that was just the that was kind of like the uh, the one that kind of broke the hymen of the weekend. Oh, <laughs> because uh, it got a little crazy after that. So after that, we, we you know now we're pretty now we're pretty intoxicated. So we're having a good time. We're laughing. We're talking about uh, uh, sexual deviancy with raccoons. We're having a great time. I don't <laughs> you got you had to be there, but uh, <laughs> nothing went down. I promise. <laughs> but well, nothing not that I know of. I did go to sleep at some point, so I don't know. <laughs> Other people did not. So, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so we threw in some stuff that uh, people hadn't seen. Now, me and Matt had seen uh, David Pryor's Sledgehammer, but Jake and uh, Justin had not. So we're like, let's let's do Sledgehammer, bruh. There was a lot of bra talking this week, and a lot of bro and a lot of bra, because you know we were all, like I said, pretty intoxicated. It was there was a lot. The, the alcohol was flowing like Lake nice. Minnetonka, bro. Excellent. <laughs> and Overholzer was jumping in nude. Oh, but, but uh, yeah, yeah, he left a sex rave indeed. Left a few hairs in there, but oh. uh, <laughs> he's got a little bit. Of the, he's got the ginge beard going, bro. Oh, <laughs> ginger pube, my so we threw. <laughs> So we threw Sledgehammer in. Now, have you ever seen Sledgehammer? Yeah, I think it's okay. But yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's pretty fucking cheap looking. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's shot on the VHS and um, and stuff, but it's it's unlike any film I, I can think of shot on VHS. Uh, and uh, I didn't know if it played well with the crowd or not, but it played incredibly well uh, due to the fact that most people didn't know what the hell was going on, uh, including me and Matt, who've seen it several times. And uh, it was just great to watch people's faces. Me and Matt, would, we were watching people's faces, especially Jake. Jake was just kind of like blown away. He was like, I don't, what the fuck is going on with this movie? That's awesome. Because so, it, it's one of the most unreal movies you've ever seen in a lot of ways. I mean, there's there's some static shots in this film that they keep returning to. They're sometimes like, you know, it seems like they're five minutes long. And it's just, it's really, it's really bizarre. Um, so, yeah, that's a high recommend for me. I do, I do love the film. Uh, just because it is so bizarre. Uh, we watched uh, Class of 1999, which uh, I know you're a fan of. Oh, yeah. That's a great one, man. It's uh, <laughs> key to his fucking hair and that. Yeah. Pam Greer with the, the tit guns. The tit guns. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Patrick Kilpatrick and yep. John. Uh, John P. Ryan. Yeah. 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 We had a blast with that one, too. That one's that one. I forget how much fun it is with the crowd. And it's too bad that one really gets overlooked. Like when people talk about fun films of that era, yeah, that'd be a good double too. Class of '84 and '99, those two. Be, they'd be very different reviews. They would be. They would be entirely. But fun because 
99 has that canon feel, right? Oh, totally. And uh, 84 has a different feel, which I won't get into here because I got plenty to talk about here. But uh, yeah, we had a blast watching that one as well. And uh, it was great. And we actually, and it's funny, we kind of ended up watching another film that's similar in some ways to that. And we didn't even realize it, I think, at the time, but very bizarre. Um, we then watched uh, Sonny Sheba and The Executioner. Uh, that was our yes. that was our morning movie, our hangover movie, so to speak. And Ooh, let me the eyebrows. Oh, and I was hung easy over. into the day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I was hung over too, man. Uh, <laughs> it had been a while since I'd been that hung over. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> and we were all feeling it a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, we watched it in the Advil before bed, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, me and Matt pounded water like crazy before bed, but uh, and Matt, like I said, Lake Minnetonka with who, the alcohol, whose, bro. <laughs> whose nickname was Water? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> had to be overholzer yeah. the power bottom of the weekend <laughs> or or zach zach was there too i forgot to mention zach uh, lightning bug was there as well nice so anyway uh yeah we watched the executioner which is fun if you haven't seen the executioner make sure you check it out we had a blast with that one uh it's always fun watching those movies with jake because jake you know he he's the uh the asian film guy quote unquote when we're all together and uh you know he's showing he's kind of you know it's it's in his his uh, wheelhouse. So when he when something gets ready to happen, he's like, "Yeah, or here we go, or here we go." You know, I, I'm that way with like cheap action movies and yeah. uh, like you know Sidaris films and stuff like that. And he's that way with the Asian stuff. So it was kind of great to kind of pass the uh, the kind of a scepter around. <laughs> oh yeah, because no. and when you end up there, yeah, well, yeah, they no went overholzer again. <laughs> yeah, pass the overholzer around, scimitar. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no we uh we had a good time with that that's got a great scene involving paint that i fucking love uh, yeah it's great if you haven't seen it really should you should check it out <laughs> i have yeah it's good. I, I know i know you have i just talk about everybody on the uh in the air because uh yeah they it's, it's a cheaper that it's it's odd a lot of people haven't seen but it, it it's it's really good and really funny uh, I don't think it means to be intentionally funny, but it's a, it's a great film to watch with a crowd. That, uh, you're going to get a theme here of films watched with a crowd. We actually picked, it seemed like we didn't pick a bad film for crowd watching the whole time. That's good, man. And I don't know how that was, how that happened. There was only one virginal film that we had, didn't, we had, we rolled the dice on, and I'm going to talk about that in a few. Uh, we then, uh, we watched Undefeatable again. I watched Undefeatable again, which again, another crowd pleaser. Fuck, I would have loved to have seen that with a crowd. Yeah. And we had to explain to everybody why it's great. Uh, we had to explain to some people who weren't intoxicated yet why it was great. What is it? Is it Linda? Yeah, no, it's Anna. Anna. Yeah, Anna. So there was a lot of Anna going around. Every time somebody would have uh, like a floral shirt on or a floral dress on in that movie, he's like, <laughs> Anna. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I always think of Loaf going, tss, tss. Yeah, the hairspray. Spraying the, the red fucking the like Halloween hairspray. No, he's pu- purple stripes through his hair. Yeah, this was purple. Because I was laughing. I was like telling everybody, I was like, he just watched Purple Rain or something. He's putting purple stripes through his hair. Oh, man. But, uh, he, he sodomizes his wife after the steak or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, which was an interesting scene to watch with a bunch of females present. <laughs> <laughs> How did Stingray go over with the ladies? Uh, he didn't go over too well. A lot of people were calling him Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> Which he really does look a lot like Seinfeld, but uh, yeah, it was it was fun, man. And uh, we uh, every time somebody here around the thing would have some floral prints on, and we saw something around the uh, resort or the uh, cabins, <laughs> matter one of us would be like Anna, 
you know so it was one of those things that carried through the whole weekend which is great but yeah that film just gets better on rewatches and stuff and uh, we had a fun time picking out when rothrock's double was in there and when when it wasn't because there's a lot of times when she's spinning in midair and it's obviously like a dude or something (laughs) uh so it it was fun we then uh, we kicked it up a notch we uh watched um we somebody I think it was uh, Fozzie. Fozzie brought a uh, if I didn't mention Fozzie and uh, Erica and Emily came and some like I said a bunch of people, um, and Fozzie brought a projector and so uh, Troy kind of makeshift made a projection. Just uh, we hung some bed sheets on one of the cabins and went outside and we were going to watch some films under the stars. Now unfortunately we didn't get to watch very much because it was pretty cool. It was like in the low forties, so um, it was cold to say the least. And uh, but we did manage to get one in, and we rewatched Rapping of all things. Oh boy! Troy just grabbed a DVD to throw in to see if it would work. And there's some pictures out there if you're friends with Troy, uh, and it worked. And uh, it was Rapping, and I think it made Emily the happiest person on the face of the earth because she didn't know we were going to watch that. She thought we were going to watch something else completely, like a horror film. You know, typically something that everybody wants to see. I know yeah. a lot of people were talking about watching The Burning because you know we're in the woods. Sure. Seemed like it, you know, the burning would have been a good one, right? Yeah. So I was sure. down for that. But when Troy threw in rapping and press play, rapping never came off. And and, oh, and, yeah. and as I've said, and we said when we reviewed it, and me and Emily have talked about, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago on, uh, on the weekend, the film is just so happy to be what it is. For sure. It's hard to dislike it at all. I mean, it's it's not a great film in no way, shape, or form, but it's so earnest and so proud of itself. <laughs> and very much of its time, so there's a certain uh, naivety. Yeah, there is. And I think everybody had a great time. And, and it's awesome. Everybody was drinking, and by the time we got to the end where it's can't stop, won't stop, <laughs> something until you reach the top, everybody was singing it, man. It was amazing. It was an amazing group experience. Let me put it that way. I didn't think it would be either, but it was fucking just a brilliant, brilliant. After everybody was freezing their ass off because it got cold, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> all right. So we had, that was one day, I think. And then we all kind of, well, that was one day and one morning. But we all kind of passed out and woke up hungover again. And I, I, I can't remember what in what order I watched. But we ended up watching Chopping Mall, which, again, that, that kind of that's the one that kind of ties to Class of 1999. I didn't think about it at the time. But I thought, yeah, that is kind of like Class of you know, security, robots. Yeah. And it's a, that's actually a really fun film that's aged very well it has it has and it, it shows an era of filmmaking really well it's not a great movie no uh because it's you know it's a very cheap film but it really is a very interesting time capsule and uh, it's funny i watched two barbara crampton films <laughs> in the last week i forgot barbara crampton was in that as well so, oh so did i actually yeah huh. yeah so i've that's seen her well. seen her breast twice twice hey man <laughs> So anyway, uh, the lovely Barbara Crampton. But yeah, as anybody's seen Chopping Mall knows, it's it's a lot of fun. Very simple. Uh, we then kind of started turning people on to stuff. We we watched Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Now, yeah. I'm a huge Andy Sadars fan. I don't. We haven't covered any on this show really outside of uh, Seven Savannah Seven. But Mill Creeps is kind of doing their thing with it and stuff. So we've kind of backed off for a while. Will was over there and did Picasso Trigger with them. Um, so, you know, definitely check that out. But we'll eventually get to our Sidaris runs and stuff and give our kind of take on the Sidaris stuff. But, man, this film went over so well. It went over so well that Troy had to buy the box set when he got home because his wife loved it so much. Oh, they're they're great. They're, the, like, you know, of the handful or so I've seen of his. They're so perfect for a crowd, man. Because, again, they know what they are. Exactly. 
Exactly. They're almost and watch them with the crowd. They're almost embarrassing, embarrassingly misogynistic, which is the way you want it to be because it's it's yes. fun to make fun of. Yeah, and it was totally ridiculous. And of course, Hard Ticket to Hawaii might be it might be one of the most ridiculous of all of them. Oh yeah, um, because of the snake thing and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just insane. But everybody really loved that. And uh, then they, there was some more Sidaris watching. I mean, we watched a little bit of Malibu Express. But we didn't finish that off and. And some other stuff, but it went over really well. Hard ticket did. I, I, yeah, a lot of people hadn't seen it, and the people that saw it, I think, all wanted to buy that box set or that uh, Mill Creek set when they got home because it really sold the Sidaris for a lot of people, which was awesome. It was a great feeling being around that and knowing that. And there's some video of us, I think, uh, uh, out there. If you're friends with uh, some of the people that are friends with me and and the others of us uh, reacting to the razor blade frisbee moment. Um, that's the spot, man, right there. <laughs> yeah. Paper mache, y'all. <laughs> so there's some video out there if you want to see it. So anyway, good stuff. Now, we watched a film that Awesome Fabian had posted on our wall some time ago. Uh, a, a, a picture of a white-masked person getting kicked in the head and blood squirting out of the eye. And he said it was lethal force. And we were like... You know, I, I was like, what is this movie? So Matt had actually, after he saw that picture, he had actually been in a used video store and he saw the film. He thought, well, hell, I'm going to buy it. It was only three bucks. Ah, nice. And so he picked it up and he hadn't watched it. Nobody had watched it. Nobody at the cabin had seen it. We all knew Awesome Fabian thought it was awesome. But we didn't, you know, we didn't. So we, we threw it in. It was 70 minutes long. We thought, you know, if this sucks, we'll turn it off. You know, if this is not a good crowd pleaser, we'll turn it off. So Lethal Force ended up being this really strange experience we watched it twice by the way um because it's kind of unlike anything i'd seen in quite some time and it was made in 2001 and it's obviously made by people who have a love for that that genre of films and uh it there's a little bit of spoof in it not 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 over the top over the top like a like a uh, like a naked gun or something like that but it knows what it is but it's also got extreme some extreme violence in it, and just I think the real the important thing about *Lethal Force* is it just has some of the most interesting filmmaking choices I've seen in quite some time from any director. Oh wow! And I promised everybody there that we would cover it the next time we get an opening to cover it because <laughs> I was like I don't know where we'll stand on it. I know where I stand on it. Uh, I said it's going to be a different experience watching it by myself because it really is this. This is a plus plus plus, as, as Fabian would say, an example of what of a film you watch with a group of people, and just and you want to see people's reactions. Like I said, we watched it twice. First time we watched it, we were all virginal to it, and we hadn't seen it, and so we were all kind of blown away. The second time I watched it was even better because I got to watch everybody else's face, and Parker. and it was amazing watching people's faces how blown away they were at certain moments. <laughs> it, I kept hearing sort of talk of pantheon film and i thought okay now you guys have my attention yeah well there's there's moments that are pantheon and uh i'll be curious if it ends up making if we review it if it ends up getting in there but uh i think the important thing with lethal force is that it knows what it is and it's uh it's very proud of what it is and um and because of that i think it has a a general dislike likability that it's it's hard to ignore so yeah, we'll we'll be talking about that more going forward. But I wanted to thank Awesome Fabian on the air for uh, really kind of pushing that on everybody because uh, we didn't know, and uh, it was a good time, very good time, a great crowd film. And, and there's good crowd films. This is a great crowd film. So 
Amazing. So, other than that, I watched a few other things. I watched Trouble with the Curve. That uh, you can avoid that one completely. Uh, <laughs> I love Clint Eastwood, but uh, ouch! I wish he would have went out on Gran Torino. I don't think he should have went out on that one. Uh, yeah, do not watch. There, I'll say it again. Ah, bummer, man. That's yeah. I mean, I, for me, it was Clint Eastwood and baseball. I'm thinking, hey, you know, I don't care if Justin Timberlake's in it. I'll, I'm going to watch that. Uh, yeah, the baseball is not really important, and uh, Eastwood's good in it, but uh, he's he's hung out to dry uh, by the filmmaker, in my opinion. So, shame. Uh, very likable people in it too. John Goodman, uh, Amy Adams. Um, oh, Ed Lauder's in there. A lot of, lot of good, a lot of likable people in a very dull film. So avoid. You won't hear me say that very How often. With that cast, does it turn out to be that way, man? It's, that's, that's it, really too bad. You won't hear me say this very much, man. But it is so middle of the road. So I mean, it is. Every time something was getting ready to happen, I was like, "Well, here goes this part," and boom, it would happen. I was like, "Oh my god, you got to be kidding me! Can, could it be any more cliche?" I mean, I knew what it was going to be, but come on, give me, give me, give me a, give me something. <laughs> very, very painful. Very painful. Oh, man, that's too bad. Very, yeah, well, I thought it was for some reason I thought it was Eastwood that actually directed it, but no, I think it's his uh, one of his uh, producing friends or something. So it's somebody he's friends with. He's worked with quite a bit. Yeesh. So yeah, I think he's giving him a break or something, giving him a chance to direct a film. And it, the film looks good on Blu-ray, but uh, that's about it. <laughs> I'll let it go with that. Uh, also, I watched uh, Waiting for Lightning. Now, Waiting for Lightning, I'd seen a long time ago on like uh, on like Apple iTunes trailer and stuff, and it looked like a <laughs> it looked like a Russian action movie. Uh, well, the poster did. I thought, oh, wow, so this looks like something like uh, Beck Mimitov uh, type a, of director. A Russian action movie. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys know those posters, you know what I'm talking about. They have this certain look to them. Those Russian action films. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is a documentary on Danny Way, the uh, professional skateboarder uh, slash daredevil. And his uh, bid to uh, jump the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. And Danny Way is the guy that kind of created the mega ramp, the uh, the really really gigantic ramps. And if you're not following skateboarding nowadays, you might not know that. But there's these gigantic ramps now. It's basically, you know, they're, you know, as most things, ten times more extreme than it was when we were growing up. And Danny Way is uh, one of these crazy guys that uh, you know broke that stuff in. Anyway. I watched this film thinking, well, it, it won't be as good as Bones Brigade, but I mean, I'm going to check it out. And uh, Bryn recommended it as well, I believe. It's on Netflix. Let's watch. Dude, I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite films I've seen so far this year. Oh, wow. What, and this is on Instant? Yeah, it's on Instant. This fucking film is great. Oh, man. I got to watch this soon. Yeah. yeah, I got caught up in this thing. I got emotional for a documentary to get me emotional like that about skateboarding. I mean, th- to me, this is a full star better than Bones Brigade. I mean, this come on, is, man! Bones Brigade was like top, like top thirty for both of us. I easy. know, dude. This would have been in there easy, but I'm, I'm going to count it as this year because it wasn't readily available and it did come out this past year. Oh, then it's this year for sure. Yeah, and uh, but it's one of my favorite films I've seen so far this year. I mean, it is so so good, so good. So, and on instant again, people. Yep. So definitely check Danny, it out. What's it called, Danny? Oh, it's, no, called, no. it's called Waiting for Lightning. Waiting for Lightning. Yeah, definitely check it out. High recommend from me, big time. So glad I checked that one out. Really glad. Was that at the weekend or no? That was away from the weekend. No, that was away from the weekend. That was once I got back. Got back okay. into my <laughs> got back into my documentary watching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then uh, the last thing I watched was a uh, new Thirty for Thirty came out this past week uh, or not a couple weeks ago, but I hadn't seen it yet and uh, saw it was coming up, and so I recorded it off the old ESPN. This one's a good one called Elway to Marino. 
Uh, talking about the, uh, I think, 83 or 84 draft. 83, I believe. Yeah, which was an amazing draft, if you look back at it. Uh, oh, yeah, Jim Kelly was fucking late in the round, late in the draft. Yeah, I think. yeah Jim Ke- there was five quarterbacks, maybe six quarterbacks uh, drafted. In the, I think maybe more. I don't know for sure if I can make this statement, but maybe more quarterbacks drafted that first round than, well, I know than any, I know than any draft previous, but I don't know about any draft since. It's been and a while I- now. And I think, but the thing of that draft is the track record of those three are Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Yeah, uh, yeah. amongst the top. Yeah, well, Ken O'Brien. Ken O'Brien was. Yeah, huh? Ken O'Brien was uh, drafted by the Jets, yeah. and he wasn't Hall of Famer, but he was a damn good quarterback. Good quarterback for sure. And yeah, might, yeah one other one I think in there, but Tony Eason. But, Tony Eason, who went to the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you got that's a good pedigree when the worst of your quarterbacks are two solid starters. But the amazing thing about it is looking back on it, Dan Marino goes 25th out of 26th or 24th out of 25th. Yeah. Because he had a bad senior year. Oh, did Kelly not go late? I thought he went late for some reason. No, Kelly, Kelly went in front of a Marino. Every, um, everybody went. And I know Elway, didn't he go first to yeah. Indianapolis? Uh, Baltimore at the time. Or Baltimore. That's, right, a, right, that's right. how long ago it was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but, and, yeah, but you know, Marino also slipped. I think because there was rumors of uh, of cocaine use. Yeah, so yeah. Well, who picks him up, Miami? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, oddly, well, the crazy thing is, is that uh, you know that has a lot of ties to my favorite football team because the Steelers had an opportunity to take Dan Marino. Yeah, because he's a Pennsylvania boy, right? Yeah, well, he's a Pittsburgh boy. He's born yeah. and raised in Pittsburgh, yeah. and uh, they had an opportunity. But Chuck Knoll, uh, the famous uh, coach, and the Roonies, uh, you know, they always go defense if they get a chance. And uh, they did. They went with uh, Gabriel Rivera. Do you remember Gabriel Rivera, senior sack? Well, see, yeah, I do. V- vaguely, a well, little he, before my time. Yeah, he only played six games because he uh, got drunk and got in a car and paralyzed himself, sadly. Uh, but he was a prototypical Steeler linebacker. You know, speed, huge. Uh, they thought he was going to be a star, and he probably would have been. Yeah, yeah he probably he probably would have been. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, they rolled the dice and that's the way it goes. And I always think, you know, uh, and they, they, they were still banking on Bradshaw, but you got to remember the next year, Bradshaw hurt his elbow and he quit. He he retired. Yeah. And if they'd have recruited Marino, I, it probably have been a different story, but uh, well, it would have been a different fucking decade for you guys. Cause the eighties <laughs> weren't kind to the Steelers. The eighties and the early nineties were not kind to the Steelers. Yeah. No, no, it was, it was, a, it was a, <laughs> as every football team knows, you go through these periods, uh, oh. <laughs> I think as a Packers fan, we even had it worse than you somehow in the eighties. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the seventies. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Pretty bad. No, you guys definitely had it worse in the seventies. Oh 70s. boy. Yeah, the Steelers were the team of the seventies. You guys yeah. were definitely the. Ooh man, you had a really shit, considering yeah. what you came from in the sixties. Well, the going, team. Yeah, and right. going into the seventies, that's the same thing. I think that's what you see because, like, the Cowboys were the nineties, and then they went to the two thousands, and you see what the Cowboys are now. I think yeah. that's that's just the. The financial nature, of yeah. It. The cyclical nature, the financial nature of professional sports. You're lucky if you can build a team that goes every year, and you know, yeah, you're lucky if you can do that. So, yeah, look at the Bengals. It took them oh god 20, yeah. 20 years to recover from kind of being a really great Super Bowl. I mean, because they were two drives away from two Super Bowls. Yeah. What's What's amazing know? about that film too, and I don't want to get into all the details for those who haven't seen it. But what's also amazing about that film, uh, Elway to Marino, is the the last pick in the first round of all fucking people was Daryl Green, one of the great cornerbacks, maybe one of the greatest cornerbacks yeah. to play football ever. Out in the youth, man. 
and uh, yeah, played for what 16, 17 years at a position that really is about youth and speed. Yeah, I mean, the only person I can think that compares to that is like I'm always amazed at Ed Reed. How long Ed Reed's played football at the safety position? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think I think at the end Green switched to safety like his at last year or two, but yeah. didn't he? Maybe I think he may have. But even but even in still. his even in his latter years, though, he was still a great Assassin. defensive player. Yeah. Yeah, one of the greats, and uh, yeah, so I mean, that draft was loaded. I mean, there was very few duds, and uh, it's amazing. And uh, there's some other things in there too. I won't get into it again because some people might not see it. Some people might not know the history of the John Elway thing and all that stuff. So I don't want to get into it and ruin it for anybody. But yeah, big recommend. Don't know if it'll make my top thirty like some of those, but it's definitely one of the better of the new uh, the new season of Thirty for Thirties I've seen. And if you're a football fan, I think you'll like it even more. So, oh, excellent, man! I can't wait. Yeah, I think you'll really dig it. You and uh, Paul, especially. Yeah, Paul was chomping at the beat. like, oh, is it on instant? You're like, taped it out for ESPN, bro. Yeah. He's like, oh, I got to wait. <laughs> well, I mean, he doesn't have to if he doesn't want to. I'm sure yeah, he can find point. it somewhere. I meant shit. to say that to him. <laughs> I mean, if he really wants to go that far. But anyway, yeah. that's everything I watched, man. I had a great time. Uh, it was great being in uh, with everybody. And, uh, yeah, it's just another reminder of why it's so great doing this. The only thing sad about it is I came back. My son wasn't feeling well. I unfortunately missed doing the show with you and Mike, which is always hard to miss the show, but it's really hard to miss a show when I invite, I mean, I personally invited Mike on for that one. So, so it sucked not being there with him. So Mike, if you're listening, sorry, I couldn't be there. Uh, but I'm going to be on Mike's show pretty soon talking about seconds with, uh, rock Hudson. So we'll great see. film should be great discussion. All right. So we're going to take a break and come back and talk one of these films. Which one do you want to talk about first here? Um, let's talk, um, Let's talk from beyond first. I, I do want to very quickly, before we take a break, mm-hmm. um, just mention to our, our listeners that aren't on Facebook, um, the group's booming as always. I mean, we're you know just flying past snowballing. We're way past 1,000 now, like 1020, 1025, something like that. It seems like every day we're getting two or three, four or five new members. Um, just a great, a great announcement I want to make. Uh, we have a few big things, uh, you know, on the cook here that uh, I think you're all going to really dig amongst other things that we're kind of working on. But one of the things we can announce is we've, um, we've recently partnered up with vinegar syndrome. Yes. Um, a great uh, new label that has been digging really deep as far as, um, I hesitate to uh, call them a bo- I think we could call them a boutique label. I would say that's a, an accurate description. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're certainly a boutique label. Um, they dig really deep. they, have a lot of drive-in fare, um, some stuff sort of of the, you know, excuse me, soft core or kind of drive-in sexual fare. Um, but a lot of care goes into the films they get and the, the restoration of those films. Um, and I know you've got your package from them. Yes. And I'm going to get my package from them pretty soon. So we've, uh, we've teamed up with them, which uh, we're very excited for. And uh, more kind of details to come about that in the upcoming weeks. And we also have a few, t- don't want to jinx it by mentioning names yet, but um, two other huge opportunities for us that we're in kind of the last leg of, of finalizing right now that when, uh, th- you know, things are in hand. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll annu- we won't mention the, uh, I don't want to say the word, the term in baseball. I don't want to jinx it by mentioning <laughs> yeah. by saying what it is. I know, I know. So. so <laughs> Or in hockey, uh, something that's called something different. But um, yeah, so wanted to mention that. And of course, uh, head over to Vin, the easy way would be Vincent, V-I-N-S-Y-N.com. And take a look, take a look at their website and what they have upcoming. So yep. 
Very cool. Then head over to Diabolic DVD and boom. Yes, yes, that's another spot, uh, of course, in this episode, which I think you may have mentioned in the intro. I did, I did. Okay, good stuff. But I was looking through their catalog because I was wondering what you might pick uh, the other night for the uh, next sponsored episode, and I was seeing some of the stuff that I got in the mail recently, so. Oh, right, right, yeah. Looking forward to doing some of those, man. Some of those uh, I've never even heard of, some of those films. Well, neither have I, quite frankly. Uh, And some really great covers, like that telephone book cover is fantastic. Yeah. Punk vacations, just some really great covers, man. Be interesting. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, we don't want to talk about the other ones yet. But uh, just know there's some uh, exciting email traffic going on right now. Very behind exciting. <laughs> so we'll uh, keep your fingers crossed for the GGTMC. So, all right, we'll take a short break. We'll come back and talk Stuart Gordon and From Beyond. We'll be back right after this. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings? Reinventions and Reese Witherspoon. Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Into the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s driving porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast. A podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think the Cinturis is a guy and the Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. Yeah, that that definitely has a from beyond feel to it. That's when I think of the doctor Pistorius. I think, yeah, Pistorius would dig on that jam, man. Yeah, he would. Right after he shaves his shoulder hair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. What a perm he has on his shoulders. Oh, fuck. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Take curls, bro. Yeah. (laughs) So sleazy. All right. (laughs) <laughs> and that he's hairy just makes it that much more sleazy. I don't know why. Yeah. It, bo- it bothers me for some reason. All right. Uh, let me synopsize our first film here. Do you want to lead on this? Or you want me to lead on this one? Um, I, uh, why don't you lead? Okay. I'll lead on this one. Um, okay. I was going to make a crass Barbara Crampton joke, but I won't. <laughs> uh, we are back. The GTTMC, the deadly duo. <laughs> All right. Do you want to synopsize? Or you just want me to go ahead and synopsize it too. Uh, I'm out of the fucking room now. I was going oh, to get no, my, I'll, I'll my take notebook. it. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Okay. All right. Uh, 1986. Stuart Gordon. Scientists create a resonator. Resonator to stimulate the pineal gland. That's the sixth sense, Will. And open yeah. up a door to a parallel 
quote unquote and hostile universe based on a story by HP Lovecraft. Never heard of him. So <laughs> what's that? I've never heard of HP Lovecraft. Who is this guy? Yeah. Up and comer. It's, uh, it's, is he a blogger? <laughs> he might be. Yeah. <laughs> I just send him a banner, bruh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, okay. So from beyond now, this film came, I believe directly right after reanimator. Um, so Stuart Gordon had, um, had uh, had a bit of a hit on his hands. Uh, I think an unexpected hit. Nobody really thought that Reanimator was going to be a hit, and uh, he had not really made anything else up to that point except a TV movie called Bleacher Bums, which I've always wanted to see. Is uh, that about the Cubs? Uh, it might be. It's got Dennis Franz in it and Joe Montana, so I'm going to guess it might be. Oh be- man, that'd be cool to see. Um, yeah, he's uh, from Gordon Chicago. Sensibilities on that. It has to be the the Cubbies. Yeah. So I've always wanted to see that. Cool. I haven't got a chance to see it yet. So. I think we could find it in the usual places. Yeah, that's 79. That's way going way back. Because he didn't make nice. another film until 85. And uh, for those who don't know, Gordon kind of worked with, uh, he worked with, he did a lot of play work, a lot of theater work, and uh, worked with David Mamet quite a bit. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So those guys are tied together, which is weird when you think about where Gordon's career went and where Mamet's career went. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so anyway, he <clears throat> he wanted to make something else, and so they, this they you know, they, Kept most of the cast together and jumped right on from beyond another HP Lovecraft. Now, it'll be interesting when you see Reanimator, which one you choose to like more. I like From Beyond more. I do like Reanimator um, quite a bit, but uh, From Beyond feels like it's just that one step further that uh, I think he wanted to go, and it's very interesting. Um, it's really a, a kind of an interesting, like blown out genre picture, and use and and really kind of a very unique one. Uh, from the 80s, uh, you know, a decade kind of owned by the uh, the early part of the 80s with the slasher and stuff. Uh, so I didn't check. That is the thing I take away the most from the film because I only seen it for the first time a few months ago mm-hmm. at the request of the resident knife flicker and, and feed my ears <laughs> kingpin um, is how different it is to most genre films of the time. I mean, this is really uh, – what, what year did we say? It was 80, 80, 84, 85? 86. 86, really at the height of, of the slasher genre. I mean, you know, was it a high watermark creatively for the genre? No, but at this point, as far as volume and how pervasive that aspect or that um, that that genre was or that subgenre was in the genre, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere. And this film is very interesting in that it uh, has a lot of heavy color saturation, which most films at the time weren't doing. That was more of a 70s European thing. Yeah. Um, the fact that it has grown-ups in the the leads, it's not yeah. Uh, that and, and and the only time usually we get grown-ups in horror films is in sort of haunted house type films, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it's not sex crazed teenagers. I mean, there's a sex crazed kind of sleazy hairy doctor, but yeah. Well, um, that's the thing. I mean, it deals with sex in the way that adults would deal yes. with sex, and that and that's not that the sleaziness. It's the the looking for something to push the envelope type of sexual thing. And and this film is timely in this day and age, in this internet age we live in. Yeah. Where people is. fall down the rabbit hole of wanting more, no pun intended, yeah. wanting more, a more extreme uh, to get them off. And yeah, so I really was impressed with Gordon's ability to craft a film that um, – is outside and very unique to the genre, especially in the time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. He was making probably in the eighties, he was making out of all the kind of quote unquote horror directors, he was making probably the most interesting stuff. Uh, this uh reanimator obviously dolls and yeah. he made uh robot jocks as well in the eighties. So which isn't really a horror film, but it's kind of a you know, sci fi kind of well it's it's essentially Pacific Rim with no budget. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, and robots instead of monsters. So I mean but uh, you know, he made Fortress, which the uh the guys over at uh Silver and Gold discovered recently. And uh, the Pit and the Pendulum, and we did Castle Freak. Oh, Gordon did uh, the Henriksen Pit and the because that was a full moon thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that one. I actually quite liked that one. I mean, at least I did when I first had seen it years ago. It's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, I don't think I don't know. I haven't seen it in a while. I don't know if it hold up very well, but I liked it. I liked it. I like I like Henriksen in the lead, of course, but it uh, that's got a blue coming out. Yeah, yeah. But he, but the thing about Stuart Gordon, and I always say this, and I don't know, we well yeah we covered love we covered the other Lovecraft thing you did the Castle Frequent, the Ugh. the uh, yeah that you didn't like is and I I didn't love it but I liked it more than you did, the uh, the thing about Gordon and, and I always talk about this is he has this this interest in things that I think are very human uh, our sexual nature our nature to uh, to destroy plus create i mean i think he deals with very human themes in his horror films and uh there even though there's very there's very much a lot of supernatural in some of his stuff he's really using that as like a mirror for you know humanity's kind of struggles yeah and you know what i thought that i think about it who someone i think he's a bit more of an everyman and not to disparage or diminish him but i think that the person i'm going to compare him to is highly intellectual, like maybe like Mensa card carrier. Uh, he's sort of like an everyman version of Cronenberg and, and some of the themes he explores in his films. Yes. Yes. That's exactly. Uh, he's a lot like Cronenberg um, in that way. And of course, Stuart Gordon's a great interview and a, and a great commentator and, and stuff on commentary tracks and stuff. He's a very smart man and he, he's a very interesting man. He has this kind of dark sense of humor. Now he gets roped a lot of times into quote unquote horror comedy. Now I don't really consider his films comedic in the way you would, uh, well, let's just say stuff like Evil Dead 2 or, you know, some of the Nightmare on Elm Streets or something like that. They are comedic in the sense that he's basically criticizing some of the things we do to each other, some of the things that are popular in our culture. Uh, it's basically satire, things like that. Uh, but it's done in a very harsh way, not an over-the-top way. Well, at least not an over-the-top way, whereas, you know, you, you know, like, looking for a punchline it's more like over the top like you know this seems ridiculous but if you think about it it's not really that ridiculous you know and uh it's it's interesting the approach he kind of takes toward humanity and, I, and I, I really wish he worked more he doesn't really work much and he hasn't done anything in a while now and uh it's a shame uh i just don't know if he'll get a chance i think his vision is a little i don't know i guess i don't think people want to put money behind some of his stuff because even if you see some of his other stuff like Edmund and King of the Ants I mean a lot of these things are dealing with violence and and kind of the dark side of humanity and I just don't think people want to bankroll that kind of stuff anymore which is kind of weird you know uh, but he reminds me of filmmakers that we still got nowadays I mean people like uh, Reffin I mean Reffin's more of a stylist yeah certainly Gordon's not really a stylist so much he's more of a you can definitely see the theater aspects. You film. can, but there's definitely a, a black comedy. Um, it's it's scathing very without yeah. coming across as um, 
as like soapboxy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. his, his sharp observations of, of humanity and our kind of uh, pitfalls and obsessions and quirks and ticks. Yeah. And what I like about this film, it's a very simple premise that feels epic due to the special effects. Yeah, smart to keep it kind of set within a few pieces and really put the money that they did have for the film. And he's also, in a way, like a Coscarelli in that he stretches a dollar pretty well, too. Yeah, yeah he really does. He really does. And they put a lot of work, I know, into the uh, special effects in this. I know that uh, John Carl Beekler was involved and a few other people. And, um, you know, it's it's very much old-school special effects. This is before CGI. There is some rotoscoping lightning and electricity, which is always awesome to see. Um <laughs> but yeah. but this is still uh, very much very much rubber monsters, rubber appliances, and things. And uh, I still think it works really well the way it's lit and the way it looks. And of course, this is uh, still you know of the uh, quote unquote KY jelly area uh, era, not area. Of, oh, well, uh, special- some areas were KY jelly. <laughs> yeah, wow. I wish I would have been KY jelly with that area. Um, <laughs> if we're talking about the Crampton moment, I think we're talking about. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then of course uh, Doctor Pretorius's shoulders. Uh, yeah, which uh, yeah. <laughs> he's so slimy <laughs> and hairy. <Ugh>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> anyway, uh, but the film isn't subtle in some ways either. I mean, the address to the house is six 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 Benevolent Street. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So you know, and then of course Ken Foree's running around in a speedo, which I think he's trying to pass for underwear. But uh, yeah, Ken yeah. Foree's rocking it, man. <laughs> Yeah, he's a big dude. He's a, he's he's really good in this film. I forget is. every time I watch this how kind of just generally charismatic he is in this film. Foree's a guy I think that kind of gets um, overlooked. I think he had more talent than I think he had more range than people were willing to give him uh, opportunity for. Like you look at him in Dawn of the Dead, and he plays a pretty grim. Um minimal dialogue role in a lot of ways. And in this one, he's, there's a lot more kind of warmth and, a lot, and actually a lot of humanity in his, uh, in his turn. And it would have been easy to just turn it into an all out fucking sleaze fest and have like a, a three, three way triangle of sleaze. Oh um, yeah. 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 First time I saw it yeah. go that way. It was a smart move to kind of creep it grounded in, in humanity with Forey and Combs and, and Crampton too. But I think there's some interesting things being said about female sexuality with the Crampton character and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Repressed yeah. sexuality with the female, uh, sex. Yes. Yes. And that, that nails it right on the head. I mean, cause you know, you first time you see Crampton's character, she is, she at least seems very repressed and, you know, this resonator, as I like to say, is, uh, you know, bringing out these things and it's 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 very interesting it, it really is there's a lot of commentary here some stuff i don't want to get into because obviously it'll spoil it for those who haven't seen from beyond and believe it or not there's still quite a few that haven't so but again it, the things it gets back to the kind of uh sexual themes and stuff they could have went so many ways with it and the first time i saw it the ken Faree character i thought he was going to go a different way i thought he was going to do something else uh during the one moment and i know what you're kind of talking about when you talk about this kind of three-way thing and it could have easily went that way I oh mean, yeah because it's a genre film it would have fit in just fine if it went that way you could have taken it that way but i'm glad they didn't take it that way i'm very glad they didn't it would have been the easy obvious way because like you said it's like okay here we go i know where this is going yeah yeah but it, it's interesting that gordon always has these sexual elements to his film because it's almost like he's 
I I don't know, you know, if that's his bread and butter, if that's what he's really into, or if it's just that he's so interested in that basic, you know, because sex is really, and the sexual nature of human beings is really, it's us at our our most primal and our most natural. Base, uh, yeah. And I wonder if it is to a degree, it has to be to a degree, him working out his own proclivities on air, Mm -hmm. as well as a lot of humanities. Yeah. And I think he's really fascinated by that because, again, it's a theme I've seen through all of his work is this uh, this this kind of interesting look at the sexual nature of males and females. And, uh, you know, when you see a theme like that, like you do with Cronenberg uh, and his quote-unquote body horror, which is really just, you know, a fear of the body turning on itself, you know, cancers, disease, things like that. When you see a theme like that in a filmmaker – it's it's interesting to kind of watch them. It's almost like they're working out demons and working out things that actually do really scare them on screen. Uh, of course, the sex stuff really adds to uh, genre films because it can sell a genre film because, you know, it's easy to get butts in the seat if you say, you know, so-and-so is going to be nude in this or, you know, this, you know, as Corman always said, you know, you know, violence and, you know, tits, basically. I mean, that, that'll sell a lot of movies. And... Uh, you can kind of see that mentality kind of coming through. And I think Lovecraft itself allows for a lot of creativity uh, cinematically uh, if you want to get into that world because everybody I know that's ever adapted Lovecraft has kind of given it a different flavor a little bit. For sure. And it kind of, depending on the filmmaker, it can kind of go so many different ways. Um, And Gordon and Yuzna seem to understand Lovecraft quite a bit i know yuzna did uh society which is another 80s horror film that or maybe and it's sleazy and kind of body yeah. stuff and i can't remember if that's an 80s or a 90s one at this point it's if it's if it's not 80s it's early 90s yeah. like between 90 and 92 oh it's 89 it's 89 so mm-hmm. yeah, squeezed right in there but no uh, pun intended yeah, yeah really but it's it's a very much in the vein of you know some of this stuff and and i really Again, when I remember when you talked about it and watching it, and how much you liked, it, how much you liked it the first time you saw it. Uh, I remember saying to you, "It's a wet film," and, and that still holds up, man. This film on Blu-ray, and this is the uh, Scream Factory release. I mean, it is, it is still a moist, moist movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. to say the least. And I got to think some of those scenes got pretty weird to shoot, man. Like the one with the big. Uh, it's really cool how they pulled off that big, like tentacle type monster and the big water thing. Oh yeah, on such a low budget. And no yeah. CGI. I mean, that's practical shit. Yeah, most of the practical stuff works pretty well. There's some stuff that's a bit ropey, like the POV stuff from the Pretorius character. I keep wanting to say Pistorius. Like, off that fucker. That scumbag Oscar Pistorius. But oh, yeah. um, uh, the Pretorius kind of POV with like his little Tyrannosaurus arms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That stuff doesn't quite work, but <laughs> they pull it off quite well, considering they show you a lot of the, the creature. Oh yeah, right. a yeah, lot of the creature. Yeah, they do. They really do. And, and, and like I said, the stuff looks good. I was actually amazed. I, you know, I thought I would watch this, and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to like this because I've seen it before, but it's going to look a little dated. And it does look a little dated, but it doesn't look dated in that way that kind of throws you off. Now, I am. I do wonder sometimes a whole new generation of film fans might look at it and say, "Wow, it looks kind of cheesy," like I did with. Um, oh, I don't know. Godzilla movies or those the atomic age kind of fifties yeah. creature movies. Yeah, the giant insect movies and stuff like that. But even then they had a an appeal and I think this one will have an appeal too. But of course I do believe this one, like Reanimator, is is a very adult themed uh look at our kind of uh 
our id, our kind of the kind of darkness. And it's interesting they start talking about the pineal, pine, uh, pine, I can't even say it now, pineal, pineal gland, gland pineal yeah. gland, yeah. And that the pineal gland in this is very penis-like, and uh, all kinds of stuff going on <laughs> in this film. So much stuff going on. And uh, I know you, you know, you've always kind of been kind of lukewarm on Jeffrey Combs, but I think you probably dig him. And he's pretty good in this one. I got to admit, he's, he's he is good in this one. I got to give it up, Randy. Yeah. <laughs> if and when you listen, <coughs> Combs is back in the good books. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can see what you're saying when you talk about Combs because he can sometimes be. He's very much a theatrical actor, and he sometimes comes across that way on camera. Uh, in this one, he feels a little bit more human uh more natural and not as much uh theatrics and stuff i mean because the herbert west character the character he's kind of known for is a very theatrical character the way he plays him and things like that so it's almost like you know he banked on that for most of his career and that's what he's known for right so that's the way sadly careers go sometimes you know luckily he had a longer career and then like ken faria who had you know did dawn of the dead and really even though he's great in this film, I mean, Ken Foray's, Foray, Foray, he's been kind of roped into this uh, genre acting. And sadly, uh, you know, I think he's a better actor than some of that. But uh, he is, he, I was looking at his uh, film art. He's good in the zombie films, the Rob Zombie, that is. He's yeah. good in the Rob Zombie films. He's in that, I think, House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. He's good in those and some yeah. small supporting turns. So yeah. He's had good performances throughout the years. He really has. But, uh, you know, most of the time he's kind of, He's been in some bad films, let's be honest. I mean, he's been in Death Spa and some other stuff. So, to be covered sometime soon. Yeah, with, with Killer Workout. Yeah, but it, no, I think it was, Bill Bryan did a double of that recently, anyway. <laughs> but it, it, it was good to revisit this one, I got to say, and uh, look at it again because uh, I'd forgotten about these themes. Uh, and when you talked about it, it kind of piqued my interest to revisit it because you had just seen it recently for the first time. And I hadn't seen this thing in, I don't know, 15 years or so. I hadn't seen it in forever. It was one of those ones that wasn't readily available for a long time either. It kind of got like it kind of like disappeared, and they had a lot of trouble with the ratings board, which is kind of weird when you think about it because it's not really that uh, extreme. But I think certain things make certain themes. I think are what may, it scares the the ratings board. Yeah, yeah, like it, they don't know how to handle it, and the way you mix violence and sex together always seems to that's just it, yeah. yeah that seems to be the uh the one that really drives the ratings board nuts you know that really pushes them over the edge and says you know what this is nc-17 but you know i've seen like you guys were talking about can't stop the music you know there's there's cock i you guys talked about the shower scene the ymca montage <laughs> i saw cocks and that movie's rated pg bro there you go and it's just it's it's a weird thing it's a you know it's a weird thing i guess the mpaa they were watching it they were probably like ah you know i didn't see anything really but, you know, I saw it. Uh, of course, sadly, I rewound. I'm like, did I just see a cock? Because this is PG. Sudsy cock, y'all. <laughs> but uh, which kept our cock theme going for the week. I don't, we, we didn't have any cock this week, do we? Well, we almost, uh, well, we did if you count monster cock. No, oh, that's true. That's true. You know, well, again, more cock. We've taken over the banner from, uh, or the scepter, quote unquote, from Cinema Diabolic. <laughs> being, being the, the cock. Depending show. on your. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how you've been forged in the fires? Yeah, but I no, but I really had a good time revisiting this. And the Blu-ray, I got to say, is really great. I'm looking forward to listening to the commentary because I've never uh, listened to the commentary on any of this uh, on anything about this one. I watched a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff to hear how they made it and stuff, and it's really some interesting stuff. And I won't go into it here because then I'm just quoting the special features. But uh, yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to say about it because you just talked about liking it, but I want to hear what you got to say about it in depth. 
Sure, just gonna put this bag of Ripple chips up, man. Yeah. On my book. Yeah. It's uh, in true Canadian fashion. The old Dutch is offering a giveaway to the 2013 Saskatoon Memorial Cup, which is the junior hockey tournament. Yes. So amazing. I'm gonna take a picture of that and send it to Coop. Let's see what you're missing. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, I was curious how I was going to go with this one. You know, I only seen a few Gordon films. Gordon's a bit of a blind spot. Some of the stuff I'd seen, I'd liked, but um, Castle Freak uh, didn't really uh, get me off. So, you know, that's the way it goes. But um, yeah, you talked about the Yasna stuff and Lovecraft, and I think the Lovecraft stuff too is way ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Some of it's very fantastical, but some of the stuff that Lovecraft gets into is is certainly, I think, in line with... Because um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Reanimator at least influenced by sort of Lovecraftian themes? Or, uh, or, or uh, indirectly a Lovecraftian story or something? Yeah, or? there's there's a short story, I think, or something, if I remember correctly, that uh, Gordon kind of came across that uh, in some rare text or something that uh, Lovecraft wrote. I think it was called Dr. West Reanimator. I think it's the name of the short story. And uh, he had never read it before, and he read it, and this kind of inspired him to uh, make the film. And um, yeah, no, it's very Lovecraft. It's, it's yeah, so very much so. kindred spirit, I think, and all that. These two films, um, Reanimator and this film, go really well together. Yeah. Um, and having said that, you know, I did come in cold to this film, meaning this is from our kind of sweet spot era. A lot of our listeners, right? A lot of us are children of the eighties, of, mm-hmm. of different ages, be it um, single digit or sort of teenagers. In the 80s, uh, I was uh, six, I guess, when this came out. Or was hey, it was 86? This film? Uh, yeah, so it would have been six, but um, probably not available on video. Probably until about you were probably about seven, seven and a half, I'd imagine. Yeah, right. I remember the, the cover certainly from mm. the the shelves. Um, but I came in cold to this. I didn't have the blinders of nostalgia on, and um, so I was curious to see how it sat with me. And I, you know, like you said, I did like it. So I was very keen to see the blue because it is a film that has a really great color palette. There's a lot of great um, lavender and sort of pinks, purples, kind of that that side of the color spectrum, which it looks really great on blue. And it's uh, it's fantastic because a lot of the, the films, as I talked about thematically and otherwise, um, weren't interested in these themes and this sort of technical stuff the way that this film is. And it's, it makes me very curious. Um, at an era that was so blown out, sartorially uh sartorially i'll just say fashion wise uh so blown out fashion wise and aesthetics across the board neon and everything i find it very curious that there wasn't more 80s horror films that have a really rich color palette <laughs> yeah yeah it would. Very, you would think more would yeah you would think so in the in that era i agree yeah very odd um in some ways you know this film is kind of kindred spirits to Hellraiser. Yeah. The sort of pain pleasure. No, oh, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Thing, so. What year did Hellraiser come out? 87, I'm going to say. Okay. Or 88. It definitely, I'm going to, I would bet the farm between 87 and 89. I would bet the farm. Well, you would be right. 87, the magical year of 1987, as we always yeah, say. Yeah, that was a big year for me. Yeah, it was a big year so, for me as well. So. Yeah. Cinematically, so yeah, right, exactly. Not much else going on as a seven-year-old, but I do remember a lot of films. From I was that four, I was fourteen, so it was like a that's like a golden era to be a oh, horror yeah, movie fan. Sure. Fourteen years old, for sure, man. Um, what is this? Women, 
You are right about that too, though, because thematically, Barker and it's amazing Barker and Gordon haven't worked together. And Lovecraft too, right? Barker yeah. and Lovecraft are kind of. It's weird that uh, Gordon hasn't done any uh, Barker stuff because his yeah. stuff would fit him really well. I think perfectly, perfectly. Uh, what does this even say? Oh, that eighties convention of the woman, the older woman in a nighty with with either and or a nightcap and curlers and a small yappy dog in hand. Whether <laughs> yeah. it's action movies or horror movies, that was such a a thing in in films of the time. Yeah, the yappy dog. Oh boy. Um, but yeah, we talked about the cast and, you know, Richard Band did the score. Richard Band can be a bit of not the whole band's family. It seemed like, uh, <laughs> you know, from producing to scoring and so forth. I think at least three band brothers were involved with this. So Richard Band does the score and he's, he can be anonymous sometimes, but I think this is a pretty serviceable score. That's a good one. It's a good one. It's one of his best. Yeah. I agree with that because I, there's a lot of his stuff. I couldn't quote to you right now. Off the top no, of my head, so. and so it's very cheap and obvious, but this is a, a good, serviceable score by him. Uh, Crampton rocks the big glasses, man. This was the big glasses era. And I have a thing for girls in glasses, but they're very much going for the librarian look for her, right? Rocking the shoulder pads too, bruh. Shoulder pads, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's let's, nice to let's see Let's just calm. say it. Barbara Crampton's hot, man. Let's just say it. She is hot. She is. And I'm, as she's, I've not, often, she's not our type, really. The blonde. She's not our type, man. But you know, she's... Yeah, she, she is. gets hotter later on in the film, man. Oh, man, does she ever. What a scene. I know Kelly Barrett's a big fan of that scene, uh, too. I know so it was the first thing he was waiting to see on Blue, man. I bet it was. You can see yeah. the peach fuzz on her ass. Fantastic <laughs> stuff, man. It is. But it, it, that scene, I'll get to in a moment because it was sort of, um, yeah, I'll get to it in a moment. <laughs> but uh, it was, yeah, Combs, man, sans glasses. He, he puts in a pretty interesting uh, turn because he's, I think he's cast very well as, as someone who's, who's still a bit naive about the world and he's, he's you can tell he hasn't had a lot, a lot of luck with women. He's kind of been holed up in a, in a lab and he adds a sympathy and a humanity to the film. I agree. In this role quite well, mm-hmm. which I like. Um, and Van Kufor, Ken for, he was fucking huge. Wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He's so much bigger than everybody guy. else in the film. Just towers over everyone. And he comes on the scene strong. I think he comes out of this, this van with this incredible caramel brown three quarter length leather jacket, just yeah, and a, tur- and a turtleneck, and a turtleneck. He's he's looking like John Shaft, man. Yeah. Now Ken Foree can rock a turtleneck. Yeah, he can. He can for sure. I'm not a big fan of the turtleneck, but he can rock a turtleneck. Yeah, he looks good in the turtleneck. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not a fan of the turtleneck oh, either, but he can rock it, man. I'll never wear a turtleneck ever. Yeah, even if he wore like a Run DMC gold chain on the outside of it, it would still even, look good. He could somehow probably even pull the gold. The chain, <laughs> as they talked about in the Crips this week, the chain outside the turtleneck is one of the worst looks in the history of life, but <laughs> yes, it is. in the history of civilization. <laughs> but before we could pull it off. Yeah, it is an awful look. And the reason why oh. it's an awful look is because, hey, look at my chain. It, yeah, exactly. It, it's so terrible. It's such a terrible idea. Yeah, or, or you know what else is bad that's kind of the brother to that is when uh, you get dudes that button up their dress shirts all the way, which is a bad look in and of itself, right? right? Unless you're wearing a tie, there's no need to button your shirt up all the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when dudes put the, the, the chain outside the button-up collar shirt. Oh, come on. Come on, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so awful man so awful and then you really want to put the crown on that make it a, a loaf would dig this look make it a mandarin collar shirt yeah with the chain <laughs> yeah 
And to make him even happier, make sure it's Brian Austin Green wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> then you're in, man, with like um, some neo-cubist kind of shapes on your silk shirt. Yeah. And you're yeah. bringing it back to my days. But, a, little, uh, a little blonde streaked hair flipped up in the front, bro. Oh, fuck. <laughs> dippity do gel. Oh, boy. <laughs> really yeah. kind of showing our colors here. <laughs> our cross colors. Got to tight roll those jeans, too, bro. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Matsuzaka knows what I'm saying right Matsuzaka now. Matsuzaka knows the score, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the three leads in this, I think Gordon casts well. Like, they're... It's a film that puts its money where it needs to, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they put the humanity of the film in three very capable genre pros. Yeah, and this is what I love most about low-budget horror films. This is a great example of what I love most. When the creativity is at this level, it really shines uh, when you see these low-budget horror films. It's it's something you just don't see very often anymore, sadly. Sure. But uh, Sadly. Yeah, this was one of the... Arguably, I would put this film, if you made a top 10 horror films of the 80s, this arguably would be in there. And that's a bold statement. The 80s were a very horror decade. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go there, but I would say that um, if I was going to go, well, I don't know, it's a good one. I, you know, It's pretty close. I, 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 for me, it wouldn't make, I don't think it would make the list, but but I would not certainly fault anyone for having it on the list because it is very good and an interesting left field entry into the genre at the time. Let's say top 20. Okay, I, th- I think I could maybe go with that. Not that we would ever make that list because it would kill us. But. Oh fuck! Yeah, <laughs> pouring over Wikipedia films by year and yeah. you know message boards trying to find. Yeah, yeah, that's eighties. Uh, uh, that's a lot of film. Yeah, that is because the eighties were obviously the most influential genre Prolific. on me. Yeah, growing up and uh, those eighties films, horror films were super influential on me. It would be tough. Maybe it would be in my top twenty two because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about some of them right now. And I can rattle off like eight of them off the top of my yeah, head. So. so I can, yeah, respectfully to from beyond, I can even say, and this isn't a, this isn't um, to sell this film short. I can easily say top fifty. Now you may think that sounds like a lot, but there's a lot of great films from the decade. I could say maybe yeah. top thirty, maybe top twenty, but in any event, to even say that it's going to be top anything in a genre that was at its most prolific and, and arguably most creative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the time. So yeah, it's saying something. Yeah, uh, it is. Speaking of creative, Dr. Um, uh, Pretorius, Pretorius has his arm room. Yeah, he does. He does. He got his arm room. Yeah. Lots of, and uh, those of you who have seen it, know what we're talking about. <laughs> leather and chains and smacking on the ass. Yeah. Lots I gotta of that, say though. that whoever that model was that he was smacking, I wanted to see more of her too. Yeah. No, no kidding. That was a Stuart Gordon type. He loves those big breasted, Kind of uh, heavy set, not 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 like voluptuous kind of buxom. Yeah, yeah kind of buxom. The uh, women that he really likes and he puts in his films, and of course that speaks to my heart, bruh. And uh, and my wang and my Pretorius. Yeah, my pineal gland. <laughs> yeah. um, Shit, I'm, I'm gonna cough. Hang on. <laughs> got a fucking cold and I'm laughing. I hate that when you try to cough. The second you start laughing good, you Man. just got to cough. It's I was like that a while ago. Oh, it's brutal. <clears throat> yeah, that's shitty. And it, um, hurt, it hurts too. It's one of those. Ugh. Uh, I love seeing all the analog technology. Like if you were to make this film today, it would be yeah. a computer with like a headset or something. It, that's Loaf's room. It's a Loaf lab. 
It is a low. <laughs> nice, nice. It is a low flab. It's a low flab. That, the, the, the term has been coined. Yes. It's a low flab. Anything in those 80s with that 80s technology, those are low flabs. Man. Analog knobs and dials and <laughs> yeah. green letters on a screen. Green letters and the red, the red uh, switch where you push it down or up and it's red and it lights up. <laughs> Blinking cursor. When Blink. something goes wrong, it's like. <laughs> yeah, this is a low flab. Nice. Um, the uh, yeah, the FX are great in this film. The they jellyfish. Are. The jellyfish things work pretty good. They're like the rotoscope stuff, them and the kind of eels, but mm-hmm. the jellyfish look pretty good. They do. Those eels uh, look great, too. I think those are mostly made of condoms. And they Seriously? Were, yeah, yeah. I saw that on the uh, behind the scenes. That's one thing I will bring up. Uh, Beaker was oh. talking about or somebody was talking about, but they're mostly just, you know, uh, several condoms put together, and they really pull that off. Well, they do. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's no. the end, bro. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, you want the spill on your thigh. That would be the GGTMC room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, the cold puddle on your thigh is not good. Ooh. Ooh. Um, the uh, actor that played Pretorius, uh, but this is, you know what, this film is inherently sleazy, so I don't feel as bad about getting sleazy. That's true. Um, the uh, Pretorius, the Pretorius, the actor that played Pretorius, I thought he was really good in his role. You know something I found out watching this that I did not know? What's that? Ted Sorrell, who played yeah, this Yeah, Ted Sorrell, that's right. He is actually the, I think, the grandson of um, Jack Pierce, the guy that designed the uh, Frankenstein makeup and the Wolfman makeup from the no universe way. Books. Yeah, I believe he's the grandson or the nephew or something like that. Anyway, he's related to Jack Pierce. Oh wow! Very cool. Yeah, it was very. I just found that out. And, and another weird thing, he died of uh, Lyme disease. Sadly, crazy. A lot of people. Sorrell did. Yeah, yeah, he died from Lyme disease. Oh man, that's too bad. Yeah. But he's really good in the film. He has sort of this menace and sleaze, like you know, he uh, he was very good in his turn in the film. Yeah, I liked him in the film quite a bit too. I'm, I'm actually surprised he didn't do more stuff. I was yeah, looking, I know, man. I was looking through his filmography. He didn't do a whole lot. <clears> he did a lot of TV, and that's what I know him from. But, uh, yeah, I'm actually surprised he didn't do more stuff because he has a great look. Got a great face. Great look, yeah. Great uh, great ass. Slimy scientist ass. <laughs> great shoulder hair. Great shoulder hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the effects in this are kind of reminiscent of, uh, because the tentacles and stuff, kind of Botine's thing work meets Hellraiser meets, you know, a few other things. But we talked about it. Effects are what this is really known for. Most of them hold up pretty well. And, Oh, it's just somehow when Combs gets kind of, he goes through a bit of a transformation. Um, and I was wondering how the bald cap and stuff would look in HD, but it looks pretty good. It's it just, if anything, in fact, HD makes him look more kind of bald, flaky, gross. Yeah. Ugh. And uh, yeah, we get a scene with Crampton in some leather, which is the scene we're talking about. It's kind of leather S&M gear and this fucking G string and... Man, I gotta say, and I think this this is a brilliant scene by Gordon because here's the thing: I'm going to speak very frankly and openly on the air. Crampton's wearing this outfit. <laughs> I'm an ass man. You're an ass man. Yeah. Um, she's licking her fucking fingers. Yeah. Combs is like out cold. He's been like wounded. He's on the table. She gets on top of him. Her fucking ass is on on him. She's about to ride him. She licks her fingers, puts him on his pants. 
somehow this is hot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> somehow this is hot, and this is this should not be hot because he's like basically like getting victimized. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's it's somehow very arousing. And it was see, my wife's very cool. Like you know, she's you know she's seen my porn stash and very very cool. But in saying that, it was a very uncomfortable moment because she's reading a book on the iPad while I'm watching this, and I'm staring at the screen. <laughs> Darting glances at her to see if she sees me ogling Crampton's ass on the screen. So you're getting a bit of a semi going, you know. You're yeah, yeah, <laughs> man. I was wearing hospital pants, right? Ooh. That's that's oh, yeah. around the house. So kind okay, of hard to hide that one, bro. Yeah, yeah well, no doubt, man. I just put the ice cream book in my lap. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> brings a new meaning to the ice cream book. Yeah, no kidding, man. No kidding, <laughs> no kidding. But uh, it's just, I think it's a brilliant scene because of how it makes us question the fact that we're aroused by this wildly inappropriate moment in the film. Yeah. So I think it's a genius moment. Uh, and I think there's sort of, yeah, we talked about the repressed sexuality of women and, um, oh man, Fori, there's a moment I was just so mad at that moment. He kind of barges. I'm like, Fori, you fucking wet blanket. Yeah. Such a, he's such a Debbie downer. I mean, I'm glad he is, (laughs) but the pig in me wanted the scene to keep going. But, uh, I'm glad they made that. You know what, too? The color palette almost feels like an EC comics, like a sleazy EC comic in a way. Yeah, it does. It does. It with really some does. of the, with like the, the runs really blown out color wise. So, um, and I think that Gordon's good enough a filmmaker that he gets you to care about the character. So when things start to happen to the characters, you, you care, like yeah. it, you, you, it affects you. Yeah. These characters are very three dimensional. They're not just yeah. uh horror tropes, uh, fodder. Yes. Yeah, you know, just basically put there so he can get a gore scene or a kill. That's right. This character's kind of mean something. Not, not that he, limbs. Yeah, not that he's ever done that. But he has done that in some other stuff. But then, and this film, and I know in Reanimator in particular, you care about everybody. One thing that I think overplays its hand from an effects standpoint is there's a moment when uh, Combs' character kind of sees the other dimension. And he goes, oh, it's so beautiful. And it's like the fucking Predator heat vision. I'm like, really? That's what's beautiful? It's odd. It reminded me of that VHS effect that I watched with Sledgehammer. It was like, you know, somebody found the effect kind of cool and they used it. Yeah. Because <laughs> Ted Pryor, it's... not Ted Pryor, David Pryor used uh, that a lot in uh, Sledgehammer to kind of blend and, and fade in and out and stuff. He used that kind of saturated color heat vision type thing. Yeah. it's. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as beautiful. No, not beautiful. Yeah. But it is I interesting. I, I really, I did like the, it's almost like two films because you got the Sorrel thing going in the first half and then you got the Combs thing going mm-hmm. to the back end. And uh, the Combs thing in some ways might be just as gross. Oh, it is because I'm just going to give you a quote from the pathology lab. Please don't eat those. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. I know there's some just really nasty stuff. Ugh, <laughs> and so that, that pineal gland thing is just nasty, man. It's just, oh, is it ever? It's so gross, man. It's, it's very, uh, it's very vaginal too when it goes in uh, and out. It's very yeah. vaginal, which is so is so Gordon. Yeah, no kidding. It's. Uh, I have to say, as a as a Canadian, I'm always amused. And let me ask you: Do you call chocolate bars candy bars? Uh, yeah, we do. See, but to me, as a Canadian, I say chocolate bar. Do you guys say chocolate bar or no? Well, we do say it. It's not. It's not something we don't say. But most people just say candy bar. It. Just, I've always. It's just like you guys say soda, and we say pop. Yeah. Well, it's actually, just, we say like I told you before. We pretty much most people in the south. Call everything much, soda. We just call everything Coke. 
or Coke. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Which is weird. It's yeah. like Coke is so unbranded down here that you just, you know, I'm thinking I'm gonna have a Coke, and then you go grab a Mountain Dew. <laughs> so it's crazy. <laughs> well, that, that brings up. So what do you do if you actually want a Coke and you have other choices in the house? Then do you must have to specify. Well, here it's so weird because here you actually go to a restaurant and you say, "I'll have a Coke," and they'll say, "Is a Pepsi fun?" I'm like, uh, yeah, it's a Coke. I'll have a Coke. Uh, can I have a? I'll, I'll say uh, you'll catch me saying this at a restaurant. I'll have a Coke. Uh, can I get a? You guys got Mountain Dew? Oh, you guys wow, got that's this? Crazy. And and the people here are so used to that, they'll give you, you know, they'll run them off. But most places, other places I go, they'll say, yeah, I'll have a. You're getting. Yeah. So it, it's very bizarre how kind of, you know, soda pop, uh, soda is so in, in, of course, in the South, in the American South, is so prevalent. So. Yeah. But candy bar is always the thing that's just very American to me. I just call, uh, them, I just call them fucking heaven. That's all I got. Yeah, a little slice of heaven, man. <laughs> uh, the homeless bum at the hospital was a really grating character. I have to think that was a producer <laughs> or someone that was involved that wanted wanted to get it, make a quote-unquote funny cameo. Yeah, quote-unquote. It, it was just painful and obnoxious. But yeah, the back end of the film you mentioned is very much a film of two halves in a way. And it's an interesting, an interesting kind of monster evolution without saying too much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh that happens in that uh, back half and um of course we get a bomb counter yes like a countdown on this and yes. uh always gotta have those yeah but yeah just the back end like the real back the back actual end of the film is really fucking gloopy and glistening and and it even has kind of this this crazy carrie-esque final moment in the film yeah it really does and all bets are off, which is, I think, interesting. Yeah, I really like how they kind of just go for it at the end. Yeah. Just like, fuck them. it, man. Just go for it. <laughs> yep. No, for sure, man. But those are all my notes, because as much as I like this, I got a lot to say about about our next film. The Rumble Fish. Come on. All right. Uh, my make or break for this. Uh, I really like that first real gooey moment where he puts his hand on his shoulder, and like oh. Dr. Pretorius is like made out of clay and goop. It's something his fingers sink in. But I like all the effects work in the film, so I can make or break almost all that stuff. I mean, there is some stuff that does kind of, you know, fall short, but I really like that stuff. And I really like, uh, but I'm, you know, as much as I think about it, I'm thinking about another scene that really make or breaks it for me, and that's the uh, Jeffrey Combs, I'll just say Jeffrey Combs eyeball scene. I love that scene. There's a few of them. Yeah, I know, but I really love the the one with, uh, I think it's Stuart Gordon's wife, Helen Gurney. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I really love that moment and the slurping noise is so oh, disgusting. Oh God, it's so gross, man! <laughs> it's so great. Uh, my MVT for this one is Gordon through and through. Uh, as much as I like Reanimator, this one uh, I think, like I say, is a little bit up for me as, a, as opposed to that one. Not that, that either. I like both of them pretty much equally, but I like this one a little bit more. I see a little bit more of Gordon in this one. So, but uh, yeah, this is definitely him through and through, and it's a nice tight eighty-five minute film. Yeah, both for our sure. Films, both our films were nice and tight this week. Yeah, they were. <laughs> Which sounds so <laughs> sounds so naughty. Yeah, man. Uh, like Jeffrey Combs' <laughs> forehead <laughs> hole. Uh, my score for the film is uh, I'm gonna go eight out of ten. I'm gonna go eight nice. out of ten. I think it's a, a great horror film from a great decade for horror. So Excellent. yeah, eight out of ten. Good stuff. My make or break is. Uh, I, I got to go with it, man. I got to go with this, the scene with Crampton in the S&M gear. Oh, yeah. You can't deny that one. Oh, it, because, again, I think it, at its core, it's a meta moment. And you're being, it's a very self-reflective moment mm-hmm. as a viewer. 
I'm conscious of what I'm watching and I'm questioning how it's making me feel because it's that that sort of taboo in a way, but it, it, you're you're questioning why you're turned on by something that contextually shouldn't be arousing. Yes. Um, so I think it's a genius moment, uh, despite a lot of great moments in the film. Yeah, I wonder when and, she's licking her fingers, what actually she's doing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't like the way her hair looks now that she's older. It's this kind of choppy, like Euro trash hair. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she's aged miss- well, but her hair is. I don't like. It almost looks like a wig. Yeah, it does. It does. It's too bad. Uh, MET is the um, <clears throat> just the sleazy. The the high the um, how can I put this the intellectual sleaze of the film mm-hmm. okay. because it's not just mindless gutter kind of sleaze which is fine I certainly have room in my heart for that oh, yeah. but it's kind of highbrow sleaze and I think that is what's most effective about the film because if it's dealing with sexuality and and cr- humans these curious creatures and violence and and everything else so. Mm-hmm. And uh, my score is a 7.5 out of 10. Nice. Um, I really like this film, man. I'm glad I saw it. And like I said, I never, I came in cold. It wasn't like I saw it in the 80s and had rose colored glasses on. Yeah. It uh, was something I came in cold to. And I, I really, I really enjoyed. And I, and I can see my score kind of going up more. And I, even as we've talked about it, I've, we, you know, you, you, we kind of get into things that, that enhance our appreciation of the film. And, you know, I can't see too many people hating this. It's not wacky, goofy, stupid like some other films of the time. It's, uh, it's an interesting film from a prolific uh, golden era of horror filmmaking. And there's a lot of special features on the disc and commentary tracks and uh, interviews with the, the effects people and the stars. And it's it's a well worth your money to get this disc. And of course, you can get it over DiabolicDVD.com. Yeah, totally agree. I was kind of wait. I was kind of loafing in between. Uh, no pun intended. Between a seven point seven five and an eight, but. Yeah, it's all, I was loafing between seven five and seven seven five, man. Yeah, there you go. So we were loafing. All right, in our loaf lab. <laughs> all right, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna come back and talk some uh, Rumblefish from '83. We'll be back right after this. Are you tired of film podcasts where the hosts exist in a constant blissful state of agreement? I mean, the main the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. Well, you're in luck. Let me introduce you to Chinstroker and Punter. One is an ex-film student with a penchant for David Lynch and art cinema. The other is a man on the street. Listen in perplexed and horrified terror as we tear apart one film a week. Just really, it's isn't. not visually striking. No, just just getting confirmation. It's just in, That's the third time though. I mean, am I, this is on. You can find us at chinstrokerversuspunter.podomatic.com. So come and share the victory. If you could. Any man in film, who would it be and why? My answer is Lance Henriksen. Oh. He wouldn't tell. He looks like somebody. <laughs> he looks like somebody who can keep a secret.
sec. Oh man, I get break cut short quick. <laughs> Oh yeah! <laughs> wow, I was caught up looking at something that is like, whoa! It's getting ready in. <laughs> Ooh! All right. Excellent. What's I thought, interesting? I thought that song had a very, in a weird way, a Rumblefish feel. I was just about to say that actually, um, because I sent you a bunch of music, and not specifically that piece um, by Al Green Show, who CDR will be happy to hear on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but that piece. Uh, I just sent you randomly with a bunch of other songs, and I didn't say play this before the yeah. the uh, Rumblefishy. But as I'm listening, I'm like, man, this really does sound Rumblefishy. <laughs> it does because it's got such an odd score from Stuart Copeland and stuff. And I thought about using "Don't Box Me In" the song that came out of this, um, but uh, I'll, I'll be forthright in saying that song has always kind of irritated me. <laughs> it's an interesting score to be sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Aaron and I were talking about that the other night. He was like a I'm curious how he, he was curious how we felt about the score versus the film. Yeah, because um, yeah, it's, it's definitely unique. The yeah. Score. All right, so I'm going to synopsize this, and we'll get going here. Uh, Rusty James, who you will hear that name often. Rusty James, an absent-minded, Rusty James. Yeah, an absent-minded street thug, struggles to live up to his legendary older brother's reputation and longs for the days when gang warfare was going on. All right, so Rumblefish, 1983, Francis Ford Coppola, and a cast that, when you look at it, it's kind of hard to believe all these people are in this film. Mm-hmm. It's one of those moments where you're like, "Holy fuck!" He got, he got. I mean, everybody in this almost went on to do something else or had done other stuff at this point. Yeah. Do we want to run down the cast? I mean, it's sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Let me uh, let me do that right now because, like you were saying, I mean, if you had have had, nope, I think I put on hold or lost him. Don't know which. There he is. Alarm's going off. There we go. That's what I said. I said I either got put on hold or lost him. I don't know which. <laughs> so let's let me run down this cast then. Uh, Matt Dillon, Mickey yes. Rourke, Diane Green, Dennis Hopper, Vincent Spano, Nicholas Cage, Chris Penn, Lawrence Fishburne, William Smith, uh, Glenn Withrow, Tom Waits. Yeah. Um, I think it's about. Oh, oh. Yeah, you uh, got- Emmett Brown, Tracy oh. Walter. Yeah, Tracy Walter, the great character actor. And I gotta say, I totally forgot she was in this, and I think she puts in a great, sweet little turn, Sofia Coppola. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Giancarlo's in there too. Now, Gio Coppola, as he's known, that was Francis's oldest son. Now, I don't know, do you know what happened to Gio? I don't. Oh, I almost hesitate to tell the story because it's so awful. Uh, Gio was uh, Francis's oldest boy, and you know how it is with first sons and things like that. You know, you don't always love all your kids, but Francis, obviously, like most dads and most moms, you know, they had a special place for Gio, and Gio was going to go on to be a filmmaker. Now, the Coppolas are all tied to film in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Francis, is, for those who don't know, Francis's brother Augie is the father of Nicholas Cage. Uh, if you ever see pictures of Augie, you can see where Nicholas might get a little bit of his craziness. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not kidding. Uh, but Giancarlo uh, was working on, uh, it was a Coppola film, I can't remember which one, uh, with Griffin O'Neill in it, and uh, uh, Gardens of Stone, I believe. And uh, Griffin O'Neill and him were on a speedboat, and uh, Griffin O'Neill, notorious Hollywood bad boy, got in a lot of trouble, decided he was going to go on the speedboat, He's going to go through two boats that were going too slow, and so he's going to zip right between them, and they were having a good time, well... Ryan was sitting down. He didn't know there was a tow cable in between the two boats. Oh, no. I th- oh, man. And poor, unfortunately, Gio was uh, decapitated and killed. 
And what's awful, I just read this as you were saying it, was his fiance was two months pregnant. Uh, it's, it's, and Francis is really, I know he was completely devastated by it, as anybody would be. I think he was only 20-something years old. 23. Yeah, so you're losing your firstborn in such a horrific, unfortunate way. Is, uh, I just can't even imagine. I can't even um, imagine. I, I can't yeah. even imagine. But Coppola, yeah. Coppola is one of these guys who has so many great stories about his family and put so much of himself and his personal life and his personal beliefs into his films um that uh yeah it's just really it's interesting but yeah geo sadly yeah but it, it's interesting seeing sophia because she the minute i saw her i was like holy shit that's sophia coppola <laughs> well me too but the mouth threw me off because i guess she must have had braces after this film yeah yeah because she has she very much has see her dad can hide his mouth with a beard yeah but because she, she has her dad's mouth but um she does she get has- Got her dad's teeth as well. <laughs> yeah, she does. Or I don't think she does anymore. No, she doesn't. I, I still find her hot. I don't care. I'll, I will not apologize for that. No, yeah, that, wrong that, that big nose, man. I find Francis hot, so we're on. We're on some <laughs> <laughs> those big wine-colored shirts and <laughs> yeah. tinted glasses. Yeah, the rose-colored glasses and the gray beard. Yeah, man. Oh yeah, but uh, oh man, my stomach's not feeling good. I feel oh. full. I had a bowl of cranberry almond crunch and a coffee, and I just yeah, went to lay on my stomach. That'll fill you up. Yeah, but um, what a cast. Uh, Coppola, who we've never featured on the show, oddly. I, I will go on record as saying I think he's <clears throat> he's made one of two films I've ever given a 10 out of 10 to. That's The Godfather. Yeah. Um, you know, you can make the, this interesting debate of Marty or Francis. Marty has made more good films um, and certainly more varied uh, and consistent, consistently good to great. But for me, I mean, Coppola made, I don't know, you know, Godfather one in the seventies. No, no one. I don't think anyone for me has ever had a run like he did. Godfather one and two, Conversation, Apocalypse Now. Anyone would be blessed to have one of those four films in their filmography. Yes, I, I agree. He has four. Yeah, I agree. I, I, agree. I mean, it's and tough. I think I think that decade. And I didn't know that it was a son. What year was that? 86, you said? Uh, yeah, 86, I think, is when his son died. So he's, you know, he started to kind of fall down after that as far as creative. I think that decade must have taken so much out of him that well, he didn't have much left to give. Yeah, well, we do know Apocalypse Now took just about everything out of him. Right? Literally, mentally, financially, physically, emotionally. So we do know that that hurt him. And, you know, of course, uh, Zotrope, American Zotrope, ended up folding studio he created you know with the hopes of making these small films that everybody would uh be a part of and uh that kind of folded on him unfortunately and stuff so with all of his success he's had you know heartbreak and that's what i say it really comes through in his films yeah it does um and this was at a time when he i i it was either back to back or like literally back to back or just back to back in the sense of when he put them out literally back to back yeah, so second consecutive S.E. Hinton adaptation. Of course, another one much celebrated, and I think every one of our our um, approximate age has. I, I can't imagine anyone loathing The Outsiders personally. But no, I don't. I don't see anybody loathing. It. I can see people disliking some of the kind of saccharine quality of yeah. The Outsiders in parts, and, yeah. and it is kind of you know the Pony Boy stuff and everything. It is a little sentimental, but it, but it, it's, it is, it's but good, I think there's nothing wrong, but it's, Coppola is very much hard on the sleeve. And I think you see yeah, that yeah. with this and rum, uh, this and outsiders. Yes. Yes. You really do that. This feels like, you know, his kind of like youth films feel like, uh, you know, some reminder of what he remembers growing up a little bit or something. For sure. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's much like Mike does with his youth films. There's a wistfulness and there's a their love letters to days gone by for them. Yeah, interestingly, yeah. Coppola considers this film, Rumblefish, one of his personal favorite of all of his. Yeah. It's interesting. He really, really loves this film. He loves everything about it. He loves the idea that he decided to shoot it in black and white. He loves the cast. He loved shooting it. And he shot this and The Outsiders in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Outside is very different um, as far as aesthetics yeah. and film technique go. Mm-hmm. It's much more of a conventional film in a lot of ways. Yeah, it kind of pops a lot more, right? And it's got this kind of well, look. You know, you know what? Here's the thing. I don't think it necessarily pops more. I think in hindsight, looking at this film on blue, I think his decision to shoot this in black and white, which at the time was met with curiosity and even some disdain. I the alarm's going off again. What do you want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> the alarm again, right? I, I set alarms for thirty in the morning. Uh, you there? You there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh well, I guess I wasn't there on his end. He will call back. You will hear it just quickly. Hang on one second, and come on, there we go. Call me back, yeah, Yahtzee. There it is. I think in hindsight, setting alarms at 6.30 in the morning isn't a good idea. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> it's, you know what it is? Because I, I have a few alarms I set for every day. Mm-hmm. Because I get up with my kids for school, I get up around this time to start getting right, prepped. Right. So I know, I know. I get parents that if I turn them off, that I'll sleep in. and Yes. You know. So um, I think in hindsight, he's rewarded for, for doing this in black and white because it's it's a stunning film visually it, it feels ageless in a lot of ways doesn't it oh it feels you know this film feels ageless um as far as uh how it it's aged as a film and it also feels ageless and it doesn't really it, it's so weird because watching the film up until i see like a, a datsun or, or something or like a i don't even know what it was man it wasn't a datsun i can't what it was now I saw a cargo, I'm like, wait a second. Was that like an anachronistic touch? <laughs> yeah. And then they're at the arcade. I'm like, fuck, man. I, this, because it feels very 50s. Yeah. But it's set in sort of 80s, 50s. It's kind of, it's its own, it, it very much inhabits its own world mm-hmm. and its own time. Well, it's very much a, a, a Greek tragedy in a lot of ways. So these films, these, these stories that are kind of like these tragedies, these Greek tragedy type plays and stuff, they... They they almost do have a timelessness to them, um, and I, I, he really yeah. I'm gonna agree with you on that. It's almost like I thought he had this, you know, that he decides to put the arcade in there and some of these other modern flourishes. I don't think there's any TVs. I don't recall any television. There is a TV. There's a moment when they're watching. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Oh, at, at uh, Diane Lane's house. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so there's it, it's an interesting, but it does have that 50s 60s feel. In the 80s, and yet he never shies away from it, the fact that it's the 80s. That's right. And uh, But then again, it has that nostalgic feel of looking back on the time of, uh, you know, something like West Side Story, something like that. And it, it, totally. it, it's it's really, really interesting decision. This film, watching it again, I haven't seen it in multi- 10 years plus, both yeah, of these films. Here. This one was really, really interesting to me. And now looking through... We're talking about a filmmaker who has arguably some of the greatest films of all time and certainly some of the greatest films of the 70s. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed how much I love Rumblefish. I'm going to wear my hair. I'm going to say to you right now, since you've decided to come out and say it, I am in awe of this film. I, watching it this time through a critical eye, 
I was blown away by it. Yeah. Absolutely blown away by it. How beautiful, how poetic a film it is. Um, I mean, I, I think it's astound. It's an astounding piece of work, quite frankly. Yeah, arguably, I haven't given my score yet, but arguably, this film is a, a masterpiece. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not without flaw, but the the, the high watermarks it hits. I mean, it's it's moments, you know, of, of film technique or emotional resonance that. I mean, it's just it's it's really high water stuff, and yeah, it really is. It's such the the thing the cinematography in this film is among the best I've seen in a film. I mean, it's so great, it's so poetic. It it opens up with this kind of uh, this look up at the clouds, and it right away tells you what kind of film this is and what kind of world we're going to be in and the world view we're going to have because it's almost like a daydream. It's this small town life it's restlessness it's familiarity it's it's the last picture show stand by me but in in you know far more poetic and and you know there's there's weird moments of kind of malikian influence or kenneth anger or koyana scotsy kind of time-lapse stuff or 50s 50s sitcom or yeah this you know what the most amazing thing about this film is to me is that it feels so intimately American and yet so European in its execution. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's funny you mentioned Koyaanisqatsi because that's one of Coppola's favorite films. Of yeah, all time. I didn't know that. That's one of his favorite films. He'll he'll constantly refer to that film, and uh, he was very influenced by that film when it comes to dealing with time and things. And this film deals with time a lot. If you watch it, a lot of times in the background, the time, the, the clouds clock, are moving. Yeah, the clouds are moving fast. We're doing that, that kind of fast photography. But also, if you look at the actual clocks on the wall, sometimes if you look in the background, they're spinning fast too. Mm-hmm. It's like a little touch of showing how quick youth goes by and we forget how, you know, it's another one of those examples of how we feel invincible as a youth mm-hmm. and we forget how we're not invincible, but when you're a kid, and you, Tom Waits has that monologue in this film where you, you know oh, yeah. you got nothing but time when you're a kid. That's all you got. Mm-hmm. You got time, time. You always got time. You always got time. But when you get to be my age now, forty, you, I, you know, I still have time. But man, time is starting to feel like it is going really fast. You feel it around your neck. It's like this. Oh my god! Like you feel the pressure. You don't have as much time as. You know, your whole life's not ahead of you. Yes, right. Exactly. It may it may be halfway behind you. And I really think that's a nice touch, showing all these young guys and time moving so quick because that's the way time really does move. But when you're young, you don't see it. They're totally oblivious no. to the fact that time's moving so fast. Mm-hmm. They can't wait to get to be 16 to drive a car. They can't wait to get to be 18 to go to a titty bar. They can't wait to be 21 to drink a beer. You know, mm-hmm. that that's just the laws here. It might be different somewhere else. But I'm just saying, when you're a kid, you're looking for these milestones. You're like, yeah. got to get there, got to get there, got to get there. And then when you get past those, time just goes, whew, it just flies. Oh, man, I remember as a kid, you know, you get a teacher that you're not crazy about. And that school year, it seems to drag on for five years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, your summer just never ends. And now it's like, holy fuck, it's June? Really? Yeah, I can't believe it's I, June. <laughs> I had a good friend of mine and his two kids over at New Year's Eve. They live out of town. He doesn't drive. And... uh it's like I haven't seen him since January 1st. It's June uh, 2nd now. I know. I haven't seen him in six months. I know. It's amazing. I just tell somebody the other day, I can't believe it's fucking June already. Yeah. My, son will, be, uh, my son will be three in three weeks. It's crazy, man. I know. It's nuts. I remember when that happened when your boy was born. I mean, I it's know. just three years. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, oh, I know. But um, 
so much. Yeah, this film. Just what a look. I mean, just the, kind of the iconic. Um, the way he frames, like even things like the billiards logo or the spray paint on the on the kind of brick wall of the gang, or just the way everything's framed in this very iconic way, it it looks really beautiful. And um, what probably didn't smell beautiful though. <laughs> Was uh, I think you know where I'm going with this Rusty James leather armband, his Iron Mike Sharp leather armband. Oh yeah, that in the white tank top. Ugh. Oh man, that <laughs> leather arm. I would not want to smell the inside of that thing. That thing goes from his wrist to his elbow. It seems. Oh yeah, that thing would stink, man. <laughs> Ugh, because yeah, this is a very sweaty film. It'd smell like the inside of a belly button. <laughs> oh, ooh, gross. Um, but yeah, Cage in this man. He, he, I have to say, he, he, he wasn't. He's aged better. He's gotten better looking as he's gotten older. Yeah, yeah. You really he's see. not an attractive youth. No, he was not. He had a wonderful head of hair, though. That's it, man. But he had, his eyebrows were the deal breaker, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he... Well, you know, since then, he's become a big Hollywood star. He's like Ben Affleck and a lot of these guys. He's got all of his teeth fixed and, you know... His eyebrows. But, yeah, they did all that stuff, you know. Um, Matt Dillon, too, in this has got the unibrow going pretty hardcore, He, he does, yeah. He does a little bit, sure. Actors wouldn't even let that happen now. There's so much no. vanity now. It wouldn't even happen now. That's too bad, yeah. Um, How do you feel about Matt Dillon? I love Matt Dillon. Uh, okay, I just wanted to see. We don't really talk about him that much on the show, but I think when I think about actors of the 80s, I think Matt Dillon sometimes gets forgotten in how great yeah. he was great that era. Word. For that era of cinema. I mean, Matt Dillon was critical to 80s cinema. I would agree. And I, I think for some reason he kind of fell out of favor, but he, to me, could run with most actors. I, I adore Matt Dillon. He's so natural um, on screen. Oh, God. He just, he's got, he's got a charisma. He's commanding. Um, I think the, the casting of him and Rourke as brothers is just brilliant. Yeah, it really was. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I adore Matt. He really can't. I can't think of anything I've seen him in if he stunk out the joint. I can't think of anything. No, you know? I, I mean, I, I can think of a couple that he did. Um, huh, I can think. Maybe, of a, I'm not. I'm not going to say he's never made a bad film. No, no I'm he's, sure he has. Yeah, but. he's made some bad ones, but I would say I agree with you though. He uh, he uh, he made very few stinkers, especially in the '80s. He made very few stinkers, mm. in my opinion. Even in you know, even in stuff like that shitty. Um, it was a, this. I want to say it was like a heisty kind of action film about within the past five or six, seven years, where he plays like an armored car driver who's corrupt or something. Mm -hmm. Even in that, he was uh, really good. I mean, kind of a turn that you know, much like Mickey Rourke in The Expendables, the turn that didn't call for any acting chops, but he really brought it. Yeah, I agree. Um, but uh, you know, this film is uh, is very, in some ways, it, it takes a bit of getting used to when you first start watching it. Yeah. Because it inhabits its own world and it's stagey a little bit, yeah. and it, it kind of has its own uh, <laughs> its own language. And and you and I have to say, for the first maybe half the film to hear Rusty James, Rusty James, Rusty James, every time someone talked, it wasn't never just Rusty. Yeah, it 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 was at first distracting. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of times where uh, Nicholas Cage is saying, "I don't know, Rusty James." And it, it got to be a bit too cute or a bit too precious for my own tastes. Yeah, yeah, it, it is obnoxious at first. It really is. <clears throat> yeah, luckily, it kind of you you kind of get used to it. But um, location wise, this film is is again, it's like you know, small town southwest or whatever. It, you know, locations that probably aren't around anymore because when this film was done in the early '80s, I mean, you're only 
20, 30, 40 years removed from from some of these spots. And now, I mean, in some cases, you're 50, 60, 70 years removed from some of these buildings. So a lot of these aren't, probably aren't around anymore. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned uh, Last Picture Show earlier. I never really put those two together, but wow, these, these those two films are very similar. They are, and and Last Picture Show is, is one of my all-time favorite films. Oh, I mean, you know, film. I grew up... Uh, I'd love to do that film with Showman sometime. Yeah, I really would. Um, I see. I, it was weird. I had an interesting childhood in that part of my childhood was spent in a town of thirteen thousand, mm-hmm. and I couldn't wait to get out and get to the city. I felt like a big fish in a small pond, as a lot of kids do. But yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I was into rap music and you know a lot of more quote unquote city things. Couldn't wait to get out of uh, my small town. And then right when I started high school, grade nine, I came to Toronto, and uh, it was kind of perfect timing i left my childhood and kind of the stand by me i didn't find dead bodies as a child but stand by me kind of <laughs> railroad tracks and playing in creeks and it was a perfect age to leave yeah. um but i always adore small town life in films when done well yeah i was gonna make a joke you didn't find any dead bodies just throwing some uh discarded pancakes in the woods yeah yeah <laughs> well no we don't discard them man <laughs> Discarded, well, discarded pancake in an empty Tim Hortons cup. Yeah, well, we use, we use discarded pancakes for uh, for roof shingles now. <laughs> the top classic, yeah. classic. <laughs> but uh, I, I really love small town life in films and kind of that restlessness and yeah. and even like American Graffiti. I mean, there's just a, something very poetic and poignant about that stuff because I think you get an examination of the restlessness of youth. It's encapsulated perfectly with small town life because there's not as much to distract them from the restlessness in a small town. Yes, yeah, that's a good so, point. Um, when, when this type of story is done well, there's there's it's hard to compare to. I mean, it's hard for it not to hit a sweet spot for I think most people. Yeah, uh, because when these are done well, like the Last Picture Show, Rumble Fish, uh, American Graffiti, that's another great example. I didn't put it in my head right off the top of my head, but I mean they they just they they speak to you on this on this nostalgic and poetic level that really is kind of magical. Mm-hmm. And this one, even though it deals with uh, violence and some things like that, it still deals with that kind of simplicity of yeah. growing up, falling in love, uh, not really knowing where you want to go or what you want to do with your life. The, that restlessness you're talking about, it really speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that romantic thing in American films where it's like, yeah, man, you just need to go to California. That's right, man. That's right. There is a romanticism to this film that is a very much an American romanticism that I think is, is beautiful and very poetic. That mm-hmm. The best of American filmmakers, or in the case of Vendors and Smothers, the best of European filmmakers can nail spot on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got to say before I forget to, I'm not a fan of steel books, but this steel book is beautiful. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's nice. It's nice. I got it in my hand right here. Yeah, it's uh, it's real nice that hand drawn, and I got to again. I got to. I guess I got to. I don't like a lot of the um, the Arrow and Shout Factory hand drawn um, cover art. Mm-hmm. I find it quite frankly to be a bit amateur. Yeah. So, yeah, some of them are good, but some of them I just I feel are very mediocre because they're not like nice hand painted kind of seventies um, movie poster. They're just they're kind of amateur hour for me. But but this one I think is beautiful and I think it's pitch perfect. Yeah, it really is. Really is it's better. It's better than the actual movie poster. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it's got a nice twenty three, twenty four page uh, book inside. So it's really good. I got a chance to look through the first few pages of it because they have a nice interview with Coppola, and I read maybe I don't know the first two or three pages. But um, but yeah, I really love the Sofia Coppola stuff because she plays uh, Diane Lane. We should say plays um, plays Matt Dillon, uh, Rusty James's girlfriend, and uh, Coppola 
plays uh, Diane Lane's younger sister, and I, I think she's just great in the film. Her little exchanges with um, with Rusty, they just feel so um, so perfect and honest and true to what sort of a younger sister would have for her her big sister's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. The way she kind of has a little crush on him and stuff, and <clears throat> really good stuff. Um, Let's it's, go look and you know, see how Diane Lane is in this film. She was pretty young. Yeah, 16, maybe 17. Yeah, it's a different time. You know, like, She's fantastic in the film. Oh, we always talk is. about how beautiful she is, but she is great in this film. She really is. Um, She's you know another film? 18 oddly, years old. 18? 18, 18, 18, 17, 18. Okay. Yeah, because she's perfect in it. Um, there, there's a concept, casting teens as teens. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. You know, another film has really reminded me of that I have to think that Robert Rodriguez was heavily influenced by is Sin City, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see some Sin City. Big time. Yeah. Big time. I, you know, obviously, obviously, the source material Sin City is one thing, um, but to move that from page to cinema is is interesting how the world that, that uh, Rust, Rusty Fish, wow, Rumblefish inhabits <laughs> feels very much at times, and it's it's hyper stylized like Sin City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and then Mick shows up, man. Mickey Rourke. I, I'll go on record as saying that he's one of the greatest actors of our time, hands down. Yes, I agree. Um, I'll, I'll put him in in the in a film with anyone, including Daniel Day Lewis. He will never. He will. He will be able to keep up with anyone. Yeah, me. yeah, he would. Uh, you know, it's a tragedy. He lost a lot of years, just kind of some demons and bad decisions. Um, but he, he is, you know, there's not, he's in rarefied air. And again, with Dylan and him, and then you add Hopper as their dad. I mean, even at his most out of his mind drunk, Hopper is still as commanding and charismatic an actor as, as we've had in our. Yeah. You can really see that here. And this is Hopper during his, this is during the excess years. I mean, this is during yeah. that period. He's, you know he's really going full on, and I know there's stories where Francis Coppola, uh, Coppola was talking about how he, when he would direct Hopper on this film, he would sometimes uh, go into the trailer and hide because him and Dennis would just, uh, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't get into it. But they are both very, you know, uh, Hopper's a filmmaker too, so they're both mm-hmm. very headstrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dennis doesn't hold back, and uh, yeah. Francis doesn't hold back. So <laughs> there'd be moments where Francis would be like, you know what, it'll just be better if I go over here. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. You know, one thing, as much as I love the, the sort of hyper-stylized world, this, you know, one thing that I think felt very silly was the bike maneuver that Mickey pulls when he first shows back up. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy and pretty wacky. Um, I like it, though, I, and I'll tell you why I like it. I like that whole fight scene because it feels like dance, interpretive it, dance. Well, it's funny you say that, and it's funny you mentioned West Side Story because my wife caught that one. She goes, what is this, West Side Story? <laughs> yeah, it's what it feels like. Yeah. Because it, it, it's not it's not a choreographed fight like you're used to seeing in an action movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very much this kind of almost, I mean, people are running around, people are doing this, people are doing that. It, it's pretty interesting the way he shoots it and stuff. And so when you get to that payoff, it almost feels like, a dance moment too, like the climax of a dance uh, session. Sure, and because yeah. there's this twirl in the air and all this stuff, it's almost like waiting for him to land on his feet yeah. and be like, "Dunna." <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, good point, man. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. I gotta say though, that glass cut in the abdomen scene—oh, that fucking bothers me to this day. Oh yeah, 
Ugh. Yeah. It looks like it would fucking hurt. Yeah, for sure, man. Ooh. Biff Wilcox is a real bastard, too, man. He is a motherfucker. <laughs> that name uh, alone. That's yeah. an 80s fucking name right there, Biff Wilcox. It is. Well, one of the greatest bullies in cinema history is a Biff. Yeah, fucking Biff. I named I named one of my first dogs after Biff because I loved the fuck that I loved all these fucking bullies that were Biffs in the 80s. <laughs> well, there's a girl I used to work with, a little bit older than me, maybe 5 years. And uh, this great Italian, really, you know, sweetheart. But at times she tried to throw her weight around, and I nicknamed her Biff, and it stuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everyone calls her Biff now, man. Nice. So, well, I mean, as much you know, as far as us people that worked with her, <laughs> call her Biff when we're together. Um, uh, William Smith is fantastic in this film. You know, for a guy that cashed as many checks as he did, it's another. It's a shame that he didn't get to really stretch his legs dramatically yeah. because I think he yeah. had more to give as an actor than a lot of people were willing to give him. Yeah, 273 credits, Mr. William Smith, so he definitely works. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, he is so he looks so great in this film. He looks perfect, man. Yeah, and he never takes the sunglasses off. Never. I think it's a great touch. I love the mustache. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love the scenes of uh, kind of uh, passive aggressiveness to him between him and Mickey Rourke with Matt Dillon in the middle. Oh. That's fucking aces. They're right so there, great, man. and there's an air of mystery to those scenes. Yeah, because these two characters have a past, but we're never yeah. really shown the past. That's mm-hmm. the interesting thing about the motorcycle boy character. Yeah, is that he's a legend not only to the characters but to us as well because we don't know anything that the motorcycle boy actually has done. Mm-hmm. We just know the motorcycle boy reigns. That's all. Isn't that perfect though? Because it allows us to mythologize in our head the way I'm sure a lot of these these youth in the town have mm-hmm. yeah. because there'd be stories that kind of come from stories that come from stories that come from stories. So small it, town it does, stories, right? Yeah. Small town stories. It becomes mythical. Yeah, it does. And this film takes place very much in a pre-technology time when small town mythology or urban legend, you know, would be so prevalent in day-to-day life. Yeah. So it allows us to paint uh, a picture of what the motorcycle boy is. Um, you know, one thing I feel very silly for for admitting this, but my whole life I, I've assumed that S.C. Hinton was a man. <laughs> well, no way. Well, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And up until I was watching this film, and I just happened to flip somewhere in the the the, the insert for the Steelbook, mm-hmm. and I saw a picture I think of S.C. Hinton, and it's a woman. Yeah. I, I never knew that, yeah, especially yeah. because the material that she wrote was very much a masculine identity as youth. Mm-hmm. Just blew my mind. Yes. So yeah, I mean, she's known for three novels. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think she's only. I don't think she's only written four. Maybe I don't know how many, but I know Dylan is in every one of them. Tex, she, she her and Matt oh, Dylan are tied to yeah, Tex, right. Outsiders, and Rumblefish. Matt Dylan's tied to all those. That's crazy. And uh, <laughs> when I think of Matt Dylan, I think of Essie Hinton. Mm, that's crazy, man. Well, it just blew my mind because it feels very, very masculine. Spot They're, on. I've read that uh, The Outsider still sells uh, somewhere around a half a million copies a year to this day. Wow. I mean, she's lived off of The Outsiders alone forever. And in my right. opinion, uh, some people might think differently, but I mean, I think The Outsiders is a great novel. I've, I've read it. I read it in high school. Yeah. Same here. And it's, it's just, it's one of those novels that just really captures an era and captures uh, kind of a a way of thinking for teenage life. Yes, an era certainly, but also a, a timeless moment in y- the life of, lives of youth. Yeah, I think almost any yeah. teenager goes through those moments. 
Uh-huh. And very rarely do we have artists like novelists, filmmakers, and things like that that can capture that. And But, you know, we talked about this a little bit, the last picture show in American Graffiti. Every now and then, somebody will come along, and they just really capture those moments. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, you're, yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. Um, interesting, you know, Hopper's character, he's very much a booze hound. He's a bit of a, he's very much an absentee father, and uh, there's a moment when, and I think it's a it's a great shorthand way to explain his character when they, they say, how many lawyers do you know on welfare? You know, Hopper's character isn't some idiot wino. He's a, he's a brilliant man who's kind of, he's a booze hound because of some things that we find out in the film. But I think it kind of tells us what we need to know about the motorcycle boy and what he's probably seen and, and kind of the, just the, the mental state of, of the Hopper character. An interesting little flourish, I think, to make him that kind of character. As far as his intellect versus his being some gutter wino. You know. Right, yeah, because they could have made him very much a simpleton, right? Yeah, or they could have made him, um, they could have made him a real monster, and they don't ever demonize him. Yeah, you could see that the boys love their dad, even though yeah, and he and you could see he loves them. He's yeah. just he is a fucking addict. Yeah, he's an alcoholic. He's he's not an abusive one. He's well, I mean, I guess abusive is a matter of uh, emotionally, maybe opinion. But, yeah, but uh, he does love his kids. He just he has demons. He can't get off of his. Uh, back you know and that's right yeah because he's never harsh or cruel to his kids in the sense of directly cruel yeah 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 his, but he does say something is cruel yeah but. and there's there's a moment when he comes home and the motorcycle boy and and uh, matt dillon the rusty james character is sitting at the table <clears throat> he does say some things that are a tad cruel yeah yeah that's true you no know, so i mean it's there that you can obviously see that there has been some issue the motorcycle boy being the older son you can see there had there is a past there there's been some issues He's seen some things that, that Dylan, yeah. thankfully, wasn't privy to. Yeah, as the younger brother that was probably protected by the older brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can relate to that because that's kind of like my youth. Uh, you know, I had addicts in my family. I had a younger brother, so he was protected from a lot of that stuff. And I, you know, I kind of took the brunt of that. So I was thinking of you when I said that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, man. Um, I could have watched a whole. I could, I'm telling you, I could have watched a whole film of. Rourke, Dylan, and Hopper in their kind of flop house apartment. Yeah, that bed scene is amazing. It's an amazing scene. It's just this. Yeah, it's great, man, because you get so much going on with each character. The restlessness of of um, Dylan, mm-hmm. the hopeless, doomed, poetic kind of nature from the motorcycle boy, and kind of the the broken, but at moments still clear eyed. Um, uh, father from Hopper. Yeah, uh, it just is really brilliant to see three amazing actors play off each other. Yeah, it is. It's one of those moments. You know, you get those every now and then. And when we do the show, we talk about it. Or you get three amazing actors really just kind of going at it, and it just yeah, so good. Oh yeah, it is. I think I just mentioned this, but if I haven't, shadows are used as good as any film I can think of. In yeah, this film. yeah, no, it's really good stuff. I know a lot yeah. of it, some of those. I found out too, uh, doing some research on the film, that some of that stuff was actually painted on. Oh wow! Which is crazy. So I guess if you was to actually see pictures from the set, you'd see those same shadows because evidently they painted some of those shadows, which is just crazy when I think about it. It's amazing. And Stephen uh, Burham, who shot this, he shot the Outsiders as well. He worked with the Palma quite a bit too. I, I saw that actually because I was curious what else he had shot. Yeah, and he did a, at least a handful, I think, of the Palma films. Yeah, so. the Untouchables and uh, Carlitos Way and stuff, which are mm-hmm. films that look really good. Yeah. I re- I'll tell you, aesthetically, my favorite moments in this film, they're unlike anything I've ever seen in any other film. And like I said, not having or having the benefit of having seen this after, 
uh, I'd say early 90s, 94, 95, so probably about 15, God, again, time passing, 15, 16, 17 years, um, not having had the benefit of having seen it in that long uh, and, and having the benefit of Blu-ray now, the the moments in like sort of the, the when they cross the bridge and they're at the carnival and they're drunk and they're in the pool hall and they're in the alleyways, those are among the the most finely shot and beautiful, but somehow just I can't even put into words how kind of otherworldly and unique they felt. You know, I have this theory. I don't know if this is a fact, but I have this theory that, you know, if you look at the scenes when they're in the motorcycle boys hometown, the other side of the tracks, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, there's all this smoke going on, all this smoke and fog and dust and Yeah. And, and then yeah. when they get they get this clarity when they get to the other side of all this yeah. music and creativity and, and and art and all these mm-hmm. things and lights. And it's almost like it's their reprieve from like the hell that they're growing up in. You know, it's it's yeah. very much, you know, I, I know it seems like it's a bit of a I don't know. It it seems like a plastic thing to say in some ways, but that I think it's what I think it's what Coppola was going for. I think it's I, there. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, cuz it's definitely there. I mean, he's <clears throat> Oh man, he's wanting to show you you know how full of life, like you know, life can be. Uh, mm-hmm. That you can uh, drink alcohol, listen to music, have a good time, and everything else, and everything be okay. It does. It doesn't have to always be the dark, awful side. Or mm-hmm. and, and that's not to say the hopper. Like I said, the hopper is not awful, but he's definitely absent. So, but there's also other addicts from their side of the tracks, the heroin addict, and yeah. just some other people too. So yeah. I think that's there's something to be said for that because it's never done. It's not done in a heavy-handed Puritan way where there's no vice on the other side of the tracks. There's vice, but it's everything in more moderation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know what shot is amazing. This film was just rife with. I mean, I could just have an album of, of like. You could almost make like a really great coffee table book of about 200 shots from this film. Yeah, I love the shot of really like right on the pool table when it shows the the pool the snooker balls or whatever up close. Oh yeah, yeah, it's oh nice. man, so beautiful. It is. Um, and yeah, I just I, yeah, Giga said at this point I was like, this is the most. It's so American and so European and it just unbelievable. Um, I love the quote of. Um, Someone's talking about the motorcycle boy's mythic status is even extended to this side of the tracks. And when he's playing pool, um, and the one guy's saying to Matt Dillon's character, he's like, "Yeah, he's like royalty in exile." Yeah, yeah. I, I love that line, and I and I just they're going out. Is there anything he can't do? And it's uh, it's really great too because again, it becomes mythic in in a young brother's eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Looking at his older brother. And it's interesting too because you know that the Rourke character knows what his fate is, mm-hmm. and you just you know you know he came back for a reason, and mm-hmm. you know and it 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 all centers on Rusty James and the Rusty James character, and you see a lot of growth from the Matt Dillon character from frame one to frame end in this film. Yeah, you really really do. Um, the mugging we talked about pretty fantastical, you know just are beautiful to look at it just um yeah really great that's, um, an, that's an interesting touch that mugging scene it is it, i have to say that post mugging there's a scene that it starts to i'm um, starting to go oh, this isn't really working it's a little bit i started to go over the line a little bit kind of careen off the cliff but it kind of pulled it back and it, you know kind of a nice it was a nice moment but a touch fantastical yeah. for yeah, me. yeah 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 you know what i really like in the film we haven't talked about is vincent spano yeah, he's good in the movie, man. Vincent Spano, I thought, would have a bigger career. It's kind of a shame that he's 
kind of he's still around, but it's kind of a shame that he's not really. You know, yeah, he didn't do more, man. He didn't yeah, do more. it's too bad. But as far as more prominent things that we could sort of say, these are Vincent Spano roles, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the score. So let's go very quick, and then I'll let you so we get into because we're running real short on time here. For you, I mean, uh, I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, the score works in spots. I'm glad they didn't go for the obvious kind of '50s jukebox stuff, but at times it's a little too whimsical for its own good. Yeah, it is. It's self-indulgent. It feels like it's, it's, um, it kind of goes against the grain almost uh, to to a fault. Yeah, it, it's it's odd. It's definitely an odd score. Uh, it really gives the film some weird beats and rhythms, and sometimes, yeah, I believe it is a bit heavy-handed. But mm-hmm. I have to admit, it is one of the more interesting scores <laughs> from the '80s. No doubt about that. It's and, very... and when it's effective, it's great. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It work when it works. It works. But when it doesn't, it does not. Yeah. Um, my last note is at times when the film's kind of at its darkest, most feverish, it almost feels like David Lynchy Americana. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I can see that. Some of the shadows and kind of feverish stuff. But that, those are my notes. I'm very curious uh, to <laughs> kind of why you picked this and what you think of this film now on a rewatch. If they had, if they had a scene for Phil Lynch, and if they had a scene with William Smith standing naked in front of a mirror, kind of like screaming or something, with a cockroach <laughs> across the floor, yeah, that would <laughs> then it would be that moment. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, uh, no. Well, I picked this uh, primarily because I hadn't seen it in years. And uh, I wanted to talk about it. And I, I, I did want to do some Coppola on the show, but I didn't want to do the, you know, I was thinking about doing the conversation, but I didn't want to do, uh, you know, the, the Coppola films. I, I, I don't feel like, uh, I just don't, I don't. Yeah, I mean. It, it's, it's, it's hard, man. I mean, when you and I, you talked to us, when we did the good, the, the Dollars trilogy, it was pretty daunting. I mean. It's tough, you know, yeah. It's tough to do those films. When we have to, you know, to do The Godfather or. Even Apocalypse Now, which is my favorite war film, like that's a daunting task to try to review those, man. It is. I, I'm not saying we never would. I'm just saying that it is. You know, you. It's hard to say. Hey, you know what? Well, let's, let's do the let's do the Godfather next week. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? Wait a minute. What? We're gonna double deuce. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, we'd probably do the whole trilogy. I mean, why not? Yeah. There's three films. Yeah. But uh, it would be. You know, it's just that's just not something you drop. I mean, it, it, there's certain films. It's like saying, "Hey, let's do the Star Wars trilogy." Hey, let's do or you know one of those. Let's do, let's do the Wild Bunch. You know, which we haven't done. I'm sure we will at some point, but yeah, they are daunting films to cover. Let's do Once Upon a Time in the West. I mean, you know, we we've talked about this where we've even talked about it to the point where we've talked about doing a separate type of show to cover those films. That's right. <laughs> Calling it like a masterpiece theater thing because yeah, so, that's right, man. We're so intimidated by talking about the movies. I, <laughs> I think we do them justice, but I just think that, you know, we, we would rather talk about other stuff, uh, first. And then, you know, if we get to that stuff, we'll get that stuff. Who knows? Five years from now, if we're still doing this, you know, who knows? Um, but you know, there's more than enough to talk about, but I did pick this primarily because I hadn't seen it in a long time. I uh, wanted to check it out again, and uh, I'm a huge fan. I was a huge fan of it growing up. Uh, I, I think I'm probably more of a fan now. I think yeah. it even speaks to me more now than it did then. Uh, the Motorcycle Boy character means more to me now than it did as a kid. As a kid, I just saw him as the animatic um, kind of mysterious character, coolness mm-hmm. personified, you know. Uh, but as an adult, I see him as... Uh, something totally different, which I don't really want to get into because it might give away some plot points. But uh, sure. I see him as more of this uh, 
interesting character who's looking back upon his life at a young age and realizes some things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's kind of like the, you know, this father figure for the Matt Dillon character. And it's really interesting the relationship they have as brothers. And, uh, yeah, it's really poignant for me because I have a little brother and I know what that's like. You know, we're only three years apart. So um, you feel this kind of relationship they have. And it feels real. The Matt Dillon and Mickey Rourke relationship really does feel real. I like the scene where Matt wakes up from after getting cut by the glass and uh, Mickey's smoking the cigarettes. And we should say that few people smoke cigarettes as cool in cinema as Mickey Rourke. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He really knows how to dangle a cigarette from his mouth. (laughs) Uh Uh, But he's sitting there reading that book or looking through that book. And I like the scene where he pulls the picture out that's supposed to be him and Matt, him and Rusty James as kids. And that little moment that... Uh, Coppola touched to of the affection in uh, Motorcycle Boy's eyes for his little brother is really is really touching. This little moment of uh, weakness and stuff. And what I like about the Motorcycle Boy character too is he's not afraid to smile. Like he's he he's knows, not a brooding, <clears throat> angsty rebel yeah. without a cause kind of. Yeah, like his reputation. People see him as brooding more than he actually is. He's actually more of a a philosopher. More of a person who sees the world through different eyes, who got away from the small town and sees that the world's a much bigger place than a lot of these people see. And he comments on, again, I think it's also a meta statement about mythology and small towns, mm-hmm. but also his awareness of his own mythology, he comments on in the film. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting stuff. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, one another reason why I picked it was I just think the film's kind of forgotten. Yeah. I think, you know, people bring it up every now and then, but when I hear people talk of Coppola, I mean, and it's hard not to talk about the big three or four, um, a lot of people don't mention this one. They, they do mention The Outsiders, but they always kind of skip over Rumblefish. And it's interesting to me because I feel like The Outsiders and Rumblefish go well together. I feel like, you know, one's the darker cousin of the other, but I do feel like they go hand in hand together. We could almost double deuce this with uh, The Outsiders and would have been an interesting conversation but again the outsiders is a film that you know if we ever cover that's great but i don't know if we ever will mm-hmm. it's been you know overcovered, and it's a poignant film for a lot of us in our youth and the story anyway so i don't know if we'll ever get to something like that but i wanted to talk about this because i thought man this this was a poignant one for me too and i don't know why people don't really talk about it and now when we kind of post it we kind of realize people there's a lot of us out there that really dig it and um uh, that's cool to me because I, I just don't hear a lot of people talk about this film. Uh, when it came out, I remember it bombed. It was a 10 oh, million. Yeah, it was it's a, not a film for the masses. Yeah, it bombed. I think it was a $10 million film. And I think it only made $2 million. So it was a bomb for Francis. Uh, one of many he's had. He, he hasn't always had uh, big, huge hits. I mean, when he's hit, he's hit big. But he's had some, some ones that didn't hit big as well. Um, but I know that, you know, from him, I know this is a personal favorite. And I can see that because this one feels there's feels like a lot of Francis coming through in this, um, which is kind of okay. great. Yeah, it's kind of great to see that. Um, because if you watch the documentary on uh, the making of Apocalypse Now and stuff like this and you see Francis at work, he's a very passionate man. He really, really just throws everything at everything. And he'll throw his own money into stuff. He'll put his whole family, his whole financial career. He'll put everything on the line to get something across. So he's like the, 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 the prototype for the mad artist who wants to get something done, no matter what it takes. And, uh, I think it's cost him a lot in his career. For sure it has. And I'm sure it's cost him a lot in his family and a lot in his life. 
but I kind of admire what Francis Ford Coppola has done. I mean, I, I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. There's something to be admired for someone that is, some people may not like his films as much as we adore his films, but no one can ever say that he didn't invest everything he had into his art and he didn't, wasn't, didn't have a, a passion that was he, he ate, slept and, and breathed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, he's made some stuff for money and stuff like anybody does to get out of uh, debts he's had and and things like that. And this film didn't really ruin him. It was really, uh, not that anything's really ruined him because I think he's always had a good reputation, but I know that the next film he made, The Cotton Club, did hurt him quite a bit uh, financially uh, as well. I mean, we You know, all... I've never seen that. I'd be curious. I've always been curious to watch it, especially in the past three or four years. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wouldn't mind uh, revisiting that. That would be a good one to cover, too. Yeah. Maybe we should cover it on the show. It'd be interesting to see what we are able to glean from it. Yeah, great cast in that one, too. But, uh, yeah, that would be uh, that would be funny. I think, uh, what's his name's in that? Little Joe. Little Joe D'Alessandro's in that one, bro. Does uh, Little Joe wear a fedora as well? Uh, he might. That was the fedora era. So. <laughs> I hope he does. I, yeah. I believe he does. I, I can't remember. I've only seen it one time. And Probably a white I, suit. I remember liking it. Uh, I know there's great actors in it. I know uh, Jimmy Remar is in there. I know that. Oh wow, nice playing uh, the Dutch Schultz character. I remember that. So, <clears throat> and of course Richard Gere, who you know we've talked about several times on this show. Uh, anyway, but yeah, I really, I really enjoyed revisiting this film. I forgot how much I like this film, and I will arguably say, and with a filmmaker who made four of arguably some of the greatest films of all time that this is one of my favorites of his. Uh, I, do, oh, yeah. I do love those other four films we mentioned, but, man, this is way up there for me with Francis Ford Coppola. It just hits on all the sweet spots, and I love the way he decided to tackle it, where it's timeless uh, and strange and interesting, but yet it has all of its emotion, and it wears it all on its sleeve, and uh, it's, it's so great. It wears it all on, its, on that wristband Matt Dillon has on. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I really love it uh, a lot, and it's a another sweaty film. We love our sweaty films here at the GGTMC, and this one's a sweaty, sweaty beast to say the least. But it was <laughs> yeah, great. Very... It was it was great to revisit it, man. It really was. I'm interested to hear your score, so I'll go ahead and kick it. Back. I mean, because we've talked, we've almost talked an hour on this film. So yeah, we could talk more. I mean, oh, really I could talk about it forever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really torn with what was the make or break scene, and it filmed so chock full of beautiful scenes um, and beautiful moments, but. Like I said, that when they cross over to their tracks, and from a technical and uh, an emotional standpoint, the stuff that goes on in the other time, like I said, it's unlike anything I've ever seen in a film. Mm-hmm. The way it's shot, and the way it made me feel, and the way I admired its beauty, and it's 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 a poetic and everything else. Um, so that was really you know astounding for me. Uh, MVT again, I mean, an embarrassment of riches. What couldn't you go with? I mean, everything about this film is just you know top notch as far as what it does, but I think at its core, the 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 performance and the dynamic of the the two brothers um, is ultimately what I could just because if if Rusty James had have been played by a character who wasn't good enough to make him vulnerable and likable, you wouldn't have been on board with his character. And then if the motorcycle boy had have been played by someone less skilled, it could have got off the rails and been a more of a mess. So. The, the, the dynamic performance by Rourke and uh, Dylan as brothers uh, is my MVT. And my score for the film is a 9 out of 10. Nice. Um, I could even go a little bit higher, like 9.25. I mean, i just really taken back with this viewing, man. I'm really glad you picked this for the show. Like, it, It's probably been my favorite revisit I've done in some time, like as far as 
being able to re-examine how I felt about a film because it's like I, you know, I want to drop it on people and say, "Oh, we should say, do this is a region B blue." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so you're gonna have a region Kelly, free player. Yeah. So Kelly Baird, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everyone else with region yeah. free blues, you got to get on it. And yeah. uh, I'm curious about the dialogue. This opens up on our page now. People that like it don't like it, and when the last time they saw it was. Yeah. So I, I'm really thank you for picking it uh, because I, I I wouldn't have picked it. I hadn't forgotten about it per se, but I'd seen I had to watch it a few times. Like I guess with a buddy of mine in high school, so I was just like, okay, man. Or we'll fish for a while, but <laughs> thrilled that you did. Nice. Um, my make or break is the scene with uh, Mickey Rourke and Matt Dillon on the motorcycle. Uh, I oh, really, yeah. I really love that scene. You can see the love Matt Dillon has for his brother, uh, the admiration. Um, it's just, it's the penumple. It's, it, you know, it's that scene that, you know, it's like the calm before the storm. Mm-hmm. And I really love that scene. Uh, it's, it's so, it's so. I uh, just it's it's touching is what it, it is. It is, man. It's really a great scene. Two young men, uh, not a care in the world for like you know five minutes of their life or whatever time frame it is in the film. But let's just say it's thirty minutes. But you know, for thirty minutes, they're living, they're living the dream. They're flying high. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all I'll say. My MVT is Coppola. I think this is arguably one of his. I think this should go in the realm with one of his masterpieces. So for me. He's made close to five masterpiece films, which is yeah, hard to with, believe. Oh, if when, anyone can make one, like we said, one of those five, it's like, okay. Yeah. And you can do a few solid films peppered throughout there. You're going to have a pretty respectable filmography. But dude's got a crown that has bigger jewels than most anyone. Yeah. He's in rarefied air. <laughs> Coppola's got huge jewels. Very. I know. I know a town. <laughs> I know a, a town. Uh, a town. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. I know uh, a quote that I always use from uh, Francis is always interesting because I've always thought about it when he said it a long time ago was that he probably has genius but he doesn't have any talent. I I, I disagree. Yeah. I think uh, he has both talent and genius. Yeah. And uh, passion. I, yeah, and I'm glad he you know made the films he made. I know they may have wrecked him personally, financially. They probably put some serious strain on his life, but he's given us some great things. And uh, I hope he gives us some more. I do. I know he's made some more films recently and he's gotten mixed reviews, but he's Francis Ford Coppola. He, he, I, I believe he will make another film that'll, that'll get to people. I do believe that. I hope did so you, anyway. Did you, sorry to care, did you ever see the one he did with, uh, I meant <clears> to see it for a few years now. Um, with Vincent Gallo, the black and white one he did about the two brothers in Chile. Oh, Tetro. Yeah, I, I was. You know what's so funny? I was going to call it. <laughs> I was going to call it Kiltro or Extro. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I said Tetro then. Yeah, that's why I was hoping you would. Oh man, I hope I hope it's Tetro though. I, uh, it I, is Tetro. Okay. I, 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 now that you said it, I, I remember that it is Tetro. Sound, sound like an ass, like Tetro man. <laughs> And somebody would correct me. <laughs> no, I haven't sure. seen Tetro. I know he's gotten some very mixed reviews on Twixt. No, oh, that one looks a bit lumpy. Yeah, but uh, again, Francis Ford Coppola. He's he's a firm believer in taking a gamble and taking a mm-hmm. risk. And uh, if it means we get films like Twixt, then that's fine. I haven't seen it, so I can't judge it. But I know I've heard some bad things. So yeah. <laughs> but hey, you know he's taking the risk. And my score is also a nine out of ten. I think yeah. this film is. I think his film is close to genius. I really yeah. do, and I think uh, yeah, anybody that thinks otherwise, I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt you. But I mean, to me, this is right up there with Coppola's best. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I think back of Francis Ford Coppola, um, I think there's very few filmmakers who have made 
uh, films that rank as high uh, overall in their filmography. Oh. I, mean, I could probably, I could probably pick out some nuns in Scorsese's. I could probably pick out some nuns in uh, Kurosawa's and Kubrick's, obviously. Mm-hmm. But Coppola doesn't always get mentioned in those same breasts as Kurosawa and, and Kubrick. He should. And he probably should. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. Like people always are naturally inclined to compare Marty and him, and I think Marty's entire body of work is maybe more consistent. But respectfully, I don't feel Marty's ever hit as high a point. And even with Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, uh, you know, or Casino or Goodfellas, for me, mm-hmm. they're just a touch below the best of Coppola stuff. Mm-hmm. And Marty's amongst the greatest of all time for me too. Like right. you talk about, if I, I, there's some early stuff of his I've never seen. Alice doesn't live anymore, and for others that. I love Marty, especially seeing some of his left field stuff in the past five years, like King of Comedy and and After Hours and stuff. But but yeah, Coppola should be mentioned alongside the the greatest filmmakers of all time because those five films that are incredible are are you know wow. And something else we could mention about Coppola because I know we got to cut this off here because we're running real long. Um, at least personally, I don't know about the show, but <laughs> the uh, we sometimes forget how important Francis Ford Coppola was to other filmmakers. Yeah, I mean there wouldn't be Star Wars without Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. There really wouldn't be. I mean, he pushed people to make those type of things. He pushes other filmmakers to make films. And uh, I find that very interesting as well. Just like Marty and just like some of these other guys. He loves cinema, and he pushes it. And uh, he also has no filter. I mean, he loves horror films as much as he loves art films. So yeah. he, he's very much GGTMC at heart. Yeah, man. But, yeah, that's everything, man. That's uh, I, I, I doubt we have time for pleasantries. I seriously do. You know what? I hear not only... Child footsteps, my wife's footsteps upstairs. Yeah, I, I thought I heard something a minute ago. <laughs> yeah. And I bet I'm, the, I'm the morning cough from my yeah, wife. I'm getting the suns up here, and I guarantee you, without fail, within the next five minutes, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to have another cup of coffee. I'm going to start watching something, and I'll hear the stirring. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, so. for sure. All right. So that's that's all that's all we got. Uh, you want to announce what we're doing next week? Is it next week? I thought it was the week after. What are we doing next week? We know. I don't know what we're doing next week. I thought we were doing that next week, so I didn't know. It's going to be the 16th. Okay, okay. So we're doing the 16th. Okay. we got a big announcement next week for the following week, though. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> something we had to put together. we got to put something together. Yeah. Uh, I don't Voltron. Know what, I don't know what we're doing next week, then. You want to make it a freebie? Uh, i tell you what. Or do you want to do Kickstarter? We'll talk about it off the air. It'll also be a surprise. We'll announce it on the Facebook group. There we go. That's what we're going to have to do because put we... the bat signal up. Yeah, we've both been caught with our pants down. Like Ted Ooh. Sorrell and From Beyond. You took this joke out of my mouth. <laughs> and, and the hand off my slimy, sh- hairy shoulder. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Look like a pack of hot dogs on his shoulder. Oh, gross. <laughs> All right. So that is everything, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207 and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com 